1: using free speech to free minds. You're listening to The David Knight Show. As the clock strikes 13, it's Wednesday, the 1st of March, year of our Lord, 2023. A 1084 of the emergency and we're back on air we've had our own little emergency for the last 24 hours i'll start by telling you about that uh, and uh, we got everything switched over to an airbnb where we're going to be for a couple of days until we can get uh, internet back at our house uh, so i'll give you the whole story about that a lot of news we've got uh, speech issues that have hit pretty close to home i'll tell you about that also The arrest of a woman with tuberculosis. What does this tell us that is on its way? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Well, you may not recognize uh, where we are right now. We're in an Airbnb. We've had a lot of things have happened over the last couple of days. I really want to thank Tony and Don Jeffries and uh, Billy Ray Valentine for stepping in at the last minute. They did a great job, as always. Uh, We lost power on Monday before we could get all the full shows up. As a matter of fact, we had a tree that fell. We had a lot of wind uh, going through the area. knocked down a tree which did major damage to power lines and to the uh, fiber cable that we have. And uh, the power people got it done with it because there were other places that were, that were out of power as well. Uh, but they got to us uh, late on Monday night. But, of course, uh, the uh, fiber people didn't. And the strange thing about the way this is set up, there's a, a company that runs the fiber, but they're really just the software side. The infrastructure, the cables and everything are done by the electric company. And this is the second time this has happened. We haven't been here quite a year. Second time it's happened. And there's no coordination between the two of them. And the the side of the electric company that handles the cable, and they run them on the same poles, uh, (laughs) works from nine to five. And uh, they don't work late at night like the electric people do, uh, because I guess they figure most people just stream in movies. And so we try to impress on them that this is um, something that we have to have. This is our business. This is what we do on a regular basis. But, um, you know, a couple of days of this. Yesterday, they promised they were out first thing in the morning, you know, yesterday. And they promised that they would get it up. But, and they promised this all through the day. And so now we have promises that they're going to come back today. But they also told us at one point in time they thought it would be two or three days. So we've got this Airbnb for two or three days. Uh, we It's easy to back up the power, actually. What's not easy is to back up the Internet at the bandwidth that we need. So we've tried hotspots. We haven't been able to get the bandwidth that we need to run the show on a hotspot. So late last night, we were able to find this Airbnb. My son's worked about 10 hours taking down the studio and reassembling it here. So... Uh, kudos to them. Did a great job. Seems like everything is working more or less. And um, uh, so we'll see what happens on this uh, on this live broadcast. But um, as you can see, maybe a little bit uh, over my shoulder there, we got a stuffed uh, coyote head here. <laughs> I've never seen anybody uh, stuff a coyote. Uh, I think that's what, we're pretty sure that's what got Scout back in Texas. So if I'd had a chance... Um, <laughs> I would have done that as well. Uh, a word about the show in the last couple of days, by the way. Uh, so we there was a problem uh, live streaming yesterday to Odyssey and DLive. Uh, we had it up on Rumble, Rockfin, and Twitter. Uh, that was a live show. We have not uh, gotten up the full show from yesterday uh, yet. We will be getting it up later today. As I said, everything went down before I could even get the podcasts out on Monday. So late last night. I got Monday's podcast out. The full show went up to the video platforms. There's four of them uh, before we lost power. Uh, So we'll get the rest of that stuff up. I apologize to everybody. Uh, Many people, I guess, figured that we have uh, just disappeared. But uh, no, we're still here. And uh, so I want to begin today with what is happening with the New World Order. I'll talk a little bit about what's going on with the speech issues, And um, that was covered uh, very well by Tony Arterburn and Don Jeffries and Billy Ray Valentine as they were talking about what's happening at Fox News. I think that's a very, uh, it's very instructive for a couple of uh, issues. The media, what is the media telling us? What is going on with elections? And the corruption that is involved in that, I think is a very important story. But they did cover that. I want to begin today by talking about the new world order and the uh, smart cities and the rest of the stuff. We have a major campaign to, uh, even as you have C40 as well as Davos and the UN talking about the smart cities and more and more granularity, even as they're rolling out their model applications of this, we have a major pushback telling us not to worry about it. It's just some crazy conspiracy theorists, and they're always trying to uh, stir the pot and get everybody upset about nothing. Well, One of the things uh, as a matter of fact, just as an aside here, I was yesterday, uh, originally we had planned on being in Nashville to speak, uh, about a a state bank and central bank digital currency that got delayed. Uh, it's not been confirmed yet, but I think it's going to happen next week. So we may have Tony back uh, for that as well, but, um, uh, to, uh, take the show, but, um, the, uh, I may have an opportunity to talk about toll roads as well. And when you look at what is happening to our infrastructure, uh, when you look at what is happening, for example, going back to Texas and the toll road issue there, you have, on the one hand, libertarians, like the Reason Foundation, love to talk about toll roads. They just love that idea. As if it wasn't user fees when you pay for your gasoline at the pump, right? But... Um, You know, and they even make that point when they talk about it. There was uh, an interesting article I found going through looking at the toll road stuff, going back to Forbes in 2017, talking about what had been happening in Texas. They started farming their stuff out to corporations, mostly foreign corporations running the toll roads in 2003. This type of model that is now being rolled out to us by Davos, a corporate governance worldwide by stakeholders, that type of thing, that's been going on a long time. And the toll roads are exactly that. And so they say, well, it was, um, it's, it's been a great moneymaker for Texas. They made $40 billion. Well, I ask you, where did that $40 billion come from? Those are extra expenses um, that uh, perhaps they would be in the price of gas, but perhaps not. Um, because when you look at the amount of money that's there, and th- this is one of the problems that I have to begin with with the private-public partner, partnership. If they're going to farm this out and they say, well, we only have to put in about 15 to 20% of the construction costs, and then we get back all this money. We don't have to do anything. Well, what is the government for, anyway? Right? I mean, certainly at the state level, uh, I don't like the federal government getting involved in infrastructure. I don't like the government bribing and blackmailing people with money for uh, basic services. But it's something that I think is better done by the government. I disagree with libertarians on this. I don't think that the, uh, the private roads are the answer. Because the government can provide this at cost. That's what they should do. They shouldn't be making a profit off of this. But if uh, Texas is getting $40 billion, how much are the corporations getting because the corporations are not selling the toll roads to you at cost. The other part of it is that if you look at, uh, again, they had a survey that was uh, done, a 2017 Forbes article, they looked at a 2014 survey from Texas A&M. Texas A&M asked the public in a large survey, what do you think should be done to improve transportation infrastructure for cars and that type of thing? And uh, they gave them about 12 different possibilities. By far, the least popular possibility was toll roads. Because we know we're getting ripped off. We know that it's the cost plus a profit for a foreign corporation. And um, so, you know, by the way, the most popular, they, they had people rank it, from one to 10, and then they took an average of the respondees, right? So the most popular one that was over eight was adjust the timing of the traffic lights. That's a no-brainer, isn't it? Can't they do that? But um, doesn't really cost them much at all either. And the least popular were the toll roads at an average of three. The second least popular item was over five. Just goes to show how strikingly unpopular toll roads are. So if you want to uh, avoid using the state capital to build and maintain roads, and you know, charge people through gas taxes, whatever it costs, uh, you know. but do it again. The, the government should be doing this at cost. Hopefully they're doing it efficiently. If They don't need to get some different people in because we all understand how the government contracts Uh, get loaded with crony capitalism as it is. That's one of the reasons why they can't build any infrastructure, which brings me to this article I was talking about. But um, if you're going to do it, do it at the state level. Try to get rid of the corruption as much as you can. I know it's always going to be there. Corruption is going to be there when the uh, roads are built by private corporations as well. And one of the reasons that Forbes was doing it was because uh, the toll roads were going bankrupt in Texas, many of them, especially the one that had, um, it was a high speed, uh, toll road made a lot of news because it was the fastest speed limit in the U S 85 miles an hour. And they still couldn't get people to pay to do that. What does that tell you? I know some people who take that toll road. If they're going down to San Antonio from the Austin area, um, Karen actually rode with somebody who, who did it. She said, yeah, it's great. Zip that no traffic. Nobody's on there and you can go 85 miles an hour or faster. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, um, but, but what's what, they had so few people who wanted to do it that it went bankrupt uh, because people are, see this rightfully so as essentially paying twice and paying a profit to a corporation. Uh, so when you look at what has happened again, if you just do a Uh, any kind of project now, and it's not just the United States, it's uh, Canada, other places, it's sent to me by a listener, David Weatherby, who used to live in Canada. Uh, They have, um, they're talking about an upgrade to their subway line in Toronto. And it's going to cost them a billion Canadian dollars per kilometer. Now a kilometer is six-tenths of a mile. So, yeah, let's figure about $2 billion a mile, <laughs> Canadian dollars. And um, uh, that's the estimate before they get started. They always have price overruns. And what the article was about was how long it was going to take them to do it, right? You have a, <laughs> I have an old expression good, fast, and cheap, we used to say in engineering. Pick two at most. <laughs> if you're lucky, you can get two of those. There's always going to be a trade off between speed quality and cost, right? And, and if you're really good, you can get two of those, but you're never gonna get all three of them. You may not get any of them if it's being run by, by the Toronto government. It's gonna take about 20 months that they're going to shut down the streetcar, the existing, uh, some existing public transportation. And they said um, a section of the street is anticipated to close for nearly five years. But of course, it will take longer and it will cost more. And that's what I saw all throughout Texas as they were uh, putting in these toll roads that, again, not very many people used. And what they did was it took them forever to build this thing. How many man hours were lost and woman hours, if you want, <laughs> uh, wasted? Setting in traffic with all this construction went on for years and years. And then when it opens up, they've added traffic lights to, you know, make it uh, more expedient to take the toll roads. And they come with agreements that the government will not build or expand any transportation close to those toll roads. So you've got the corporations in charge. They've got a monopoly on transportation in that area and they're going to shut down any competition in that area. But of course, the governor in Tennessee wants to call them choice lanes. They're coercion lanes is what they are. Just like uh, the choice of having a vaccine mandate. Oh, it's not a mandate they said. We're not dragging you out of the house and sticking this in your arm. You got a choice. You can either have a job or the vaccine. You can either go to school or travel or you can have the vaccine. Uh, all the costs they said are being covered by the province, not the city, but the province, the state government essentially. Um, And it's um, already doubled their initial estimates and they haven't even started on this thing yet. Businesses are set to be impacted by the construction. They're asking for transparency and accountability because they've seen this movie before. They talked about how much longer other projects had taken than they had anticipated. So as all this is happening, we have academics now calling for World War II-style rationing of food and fuel in order to stop climate change. You understand that the 15-minute city is designed so that they can lock us down. And I, I've seen some commentators saying, "Well, this is really a climate lockdown." It is, except they're never going to end it. This is a permanent lockdown. That's one of the things they don't talk about, and so. Uh, the uh, this Zero Hedge article says there's no concrete evidence, of course, supporting the theory that man-made carbon emissions have any relevance whatsoever to weather and climate change. There's no evidence of a climate crisis. There's no evidence that human industry and agriculture marks a negative uh, impact on the Earth's temperatures. There's no evidence that carbon emissions have a causational effect on global warming. No evidence to support a tipping point theory that asserts that if you have just one and a half degree centigrade change, it's going to be a catastrophe globally. Again, based on what? As the founder of the weather channel said, how could you even talk about that? All the records that we have, and we don't have records going back that far. We don't have records in that many different areas in terms of thermometers that are setting it. All those, Old records, temperature records, were obtained by looking at mercury thermometers. You can't get that kind of accuracy on a mercury thermometer, number one. Number two, we've seen these land readings are always skewed because what has happened is urbanization. And if they haven't uh, turned it into a concrete jungle where the thermometers were, they moved the thermometers in many cases to an airport tarmac. And, of course, you're going to see an increase in temperatures that way. But if you look at it, from satellites in space you do not see that Uh, you don't see any warming anyway right now in europe the farming industry is facing a basic armageddon as governmental red tape and climate-based taxation are set to make the growing of food impossible for a majority of farmers that's the point with all this and so uh you know why should you care they say well do you eat do you travel?" Do you want to own anything? And a paper titled, Rationing and Climate Change Mitigation, uh, they assert that rapid reduction of global emissions is needed, that rationing, similar to standards enforced during the two world wars, especially those during World War II, should be enforced again by governments. And why is that? Well, because I've said over and over again. As we've seen for the last 1,084 days, our governments and every nation uh, of the world are at war with their people. And it doesn't matter what political party they say they are, what political philosophy they say they are. They're at war with their own people. And, of course, sanctions, rationing, and things like that, are one of the things that you do to your enemy. So uh, this is coming. It's going to be coming through uh, CBDC especially. Uh, Listen to this statement by the uh, president of Alibaba.
2: We're developing through technology, and ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on.
1: Well, of course, um, we were all... Demanding that, right? What we all want is some way for us to track our carbon footprint. Of course, we don't care about that. They care about it. Uh, They're the ones who are pushing this. The creation of the climate crisis boogeyman is an obvious ploy for centralized authoritarianism in the name of the greater good. That's exactly what this is. This is about creating a world in which every individual is required to constantly justify their existence. I like the way uh, Zero Hedge article puts that. To prove that you're worthy, (laughs) we are not worthy. We're not worthy. Uh, to the globalist machine it's tantamount to emissions-based slavery. That's right. I've said that for the longest time. Smart cities for dumb slaves. If you buy that, and of course, he was making that statement at the World Economic Forum. And so this article uh, by Mike Whitney, uh, The Plan to Wreck America, well, we all know that, don't we? I was surprised. I, I did think he had um, three good quotes in this that I thought were uh, very important to see. Uh, one of them from Colonel McGregor, who was talking about the big picture. You know, he's talked a great deal about what's going on in Ukraine and, um, and with Ru- the Russian war. He's been um, uh, given people a very different view of that, and I think um, he's been right. In terms of what he's had to say. But um, when you look at this, um, you know, like I said, there's some, some good quotes in this article, but I was surprised at how it started out. Listen to this: establishment elites and their media not only stood four square behind Russia Gate, the Trump impeachment, the BLM riots, and the January 6th fiasco, they also had a hand in the COVID hysteria and the host of repressive measures that were imposed in the name of public health. They had a hand in it. I think they were four square behind it in every way possible. So I was really kind of surprised at that. And you notice that the perceived problems that he has here are essentially partisan. This is a bipartisan war against us. And we'll talk about that coming up. Even the uh, Ukraine war and the, Coming uh, Chinese war or a bipartisan move against us. The establishment Republicans are as much into this as the authoritarian Democrats.
0: What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities cbp agents and officers are keeping people safe join u.s customs and border protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself learn more at cbp.gov careers
1: so just like the pandemic we're going to see this happening with climate we're going to be told well eventually they'll they'll come out and say yeah you know it didn't work Um, But we had to because it was an emergency. We didn't have any time to test anything, right? So, yeah, I know that we completely destroyed the electric grid. I know we crashed the economy and all the rest of this stuff. But, uh, hey, you know, we just had to um, because it was an emergency. Maybe someday they'll say, okay, it wasn't an emergency. We haven't gotten to that point with the pandemic yet, have we? Uh, They still want to admit that. As a matter of fact, they're still out there pushing now the lab leak and fighting, still fighting over that because they want to push uh, the idea that this was something that was dangerous and it was necessary. That's one of the reasons why they're pushing this. Another reason they're pushing it is because they want fear. And the third reason they're pushing this lab leak stuff uh, so much, you've got the FBI, you've got the Department of Energy, you've got the clowns on late-night TV mocking, still mocking, uh, the idea that it came from a lab, that it was designed. Nevertheless, they're pushing this out because they want fear. They want to tell you that it was serious, really was an emergency. And now because they want to escalate public opinion against China because that's their next move. So uh, we're not at this point yet where they're going to say, well, okay, it wasn't an emergency. But understand, this is all national governments. This is not just the U.S. government, although the U.S. government has really taken the lead. So uh, here's what Colonel McGregor, about the big picture
2: overnight russia must be destroyed it's interesting because i was reading a document that was authored by george soros over 10 years ago in which he talked specifically about uh, about this kind of uh, all-out war that would ultimately come against russia because he said this is the last nationalist state that rests on a foundation obviously of uh, orthodox christian culture with Russian identity at its core. Uh, That has to be removed. So I think the people that are in charge of the West and in charge in Washington think that they have successfully destroyed the national identities of the European and American peoples. That we have no sense of ourselves. Our borders are undefended. We we present no resistance to incoming migrants from the uh, developing world who essentially roll over us as though uh, we owe them a living and uh, that our laws do not count. Thus far, I would say that's a pretty good assessment, an accurate evaluation of what we've been doing. I think that's a great victory for George Soros and the globalists, the anti-nationalists, those who want open borders and they, they call it an open society, which means that you end up with nothing, an amorphous mass of people struggling to survive were reduced to the lowest levels of uh, subsistence. So that's in the background. And in fact, he even goes so far as talking about uh, how useful it would be if East Europeans uh, were the ones that, uh, whose lives were expended in this process, uh, and not West Europeans who simply will not take the casualties. This is not a minor ma- matter. This is the sort of thinking that is so destructive and so evil, in my judgment, that, that that's really what we are dealing with in our own countries, and I think Putin recognizes that. So for him, it's existential. And I think the Russian people see it this way. These these reports of, oh, the Russians are miserable, and wanna get rid of Putin. Uh, I guess you can find somebody over there. I don't know how many. But uh, certainly in the high 80s, he has approval ratings, and I'd say that if anybody tried to remove the man, he'd probably be killed or cut down long before he got near the Kremlin by Russians who strongly support what's happening. I think they know their survival is at risk.
1: Yeah, I spoke last week about a video I saw from Konstantin Kissin. He said, well, so what people like Putin? I mean, he's, he's authoritarian in many regards. He uh, uh, checks most of the boxes for that. But they're looking at this. They understand they're under attack from NATO, number one. Number two, uh, he said when the Soviet Union fell, it was total chaos. Uh, things got even worse than it was under uh, the Soviet Union. And... Um, Things were very chaotic, and he brought order. <clears throat> and so people saw him as bringing order to that situation. So those two things, you know, even though um, you know, he's incredibly authoritarian by our standards. As Constantine Kissin said, uh, so define democracy. He goes, ask a Russian to define that. They've never lived under democracy. The country's been around for 800 years. They've never seen it. So they look at these authoritarian things that we may recoil at, you know, resting opposition leaders. Are we really that far away here in the so-called democratic West? As Colonel McGregor pointed out one of the things he said there, so you wind up with an amorphous mass of people struggling to survive who are reduced to the lowest levels of subsistence. That's exactly what they're aiming for. They want to remove our history, remove our culture, If you have no culture, no history, you have no vision of who you are, where you're going, what's happening with your family, your posterity. They want to instill in everyone a sense of guilt. Just take a look at what they're doing to students in school. Oh, you're white? Oh, well, you're instantly guilty. As a matter of fact, they have beaten them into the ground. These self-loathing white liberals that we've talked about for years, They were a product of the educational system, and they've recycled through. They've now become teachers. And it's getting intensified, every bit of this. And so uh, that is the war against us. That is one of the things that uh, Russia is not suffering from. At that point, the self-loathing of the public. And, of course, uh, they have seen hardship in so many different ways. Uh, But they understand this is an existential crisis, and, look, even if they didn't, Putin knows it. You have La La Harris saying he's a war criminal. We have got to capture him. We got to take him to justice and everything. He's he saw what happened in Yugoslavia, uh, where the uh, people that have been flagged by NATO, what happened to them. Uh, there was also an excellent article by Kurt Nemo. Remember him? He was uh, used to be the editor at InfoWars when I went there. When it was worth reading the articles, uh, not anymore. It's now become a joke. But Kurt Nemo is still out there writing. Uh, he's got a great uh, uh, insight on his on Substack, he says, "I challenge people to investigate the World Economic Forum's Global Redesign Initiative, according to the Transnational Institute in the Netherlands." Of course, uh, there you know, Mark Ruta, this disciple of Klaus Schwab, is really setting the Netherlands up to be a uh, a hub, if you will, in many different ways, especially of food distribution and taking control of and taking away food supply. A transition, they said, this is what the organization says, a transition away from intergovernmental decision-making toward a system of multi-stakeholder governance. In other words, by stealth, they are marginalizing a recognized model where we vote in governments who then negotiate treaties, which are then ratified by our elected representatives with a model where a self-selected group of stakeholders make decisions on our behalf. Well, that's what we're seeing with World Health Economic, uh, the World Health Organization and um, the pandemic treaty and the new rules that they put in. Uh, we're going to negotiate treaties. By the, by the way, we won't even bother to vote on it. We'll just be led into it by Biden. Uh, no, we're looking at global governance. We're looking at a cryptocracy, kleptocracy uh, government by thieves and the thieves are going to be multinational corporations. As you see operating at the world economic forum at Bilderberg and these other places, uh, that is where they're getting the, uh, the initial capital for this tyranny It's where they get the technology for it. And that's how these people become stakeholders. In other words, large transnational corporate stakeholders will be deciding where you live, what you eat, whether or not you reproduce. Uh, They will tell you what you can and cannot rent from them. And again, um, excellent article from uh, Kurt Nemo. What he's saying is that these billionaire elites, uh, says um, Whitney, paraphrasing the full article, are now so powerful they can openly say that they're going to transition away from intergovernmental decision-making, in other words, representative government, to a system of multi-stakeholder governance. You see, the uh, world government, at least in its early forms, is going to be a distributed network to some degree. It's going to be a cabal, an oligarchy. It's not going to be a single point. Uh, It's going to be like Hydra, maybe, you know? Uh, Oh, yes, multi-headed thing. In which only the billionaire stakeholders have a vote in which policies are implemented. He says, but isn't that the way things work already? It is the way things work already. Decisions are being made by a handful of people who brag about what they're going to do. They were never voted into office. We've seen this throughout the lockdown. We've seen this from bureaucrats as well as from uh, foreign bureaucrats, whether they're in the EU or other places. And then the third thing that I thought was interesting about this was uh, um, an article from the Saker about Operation Gladio which I've talked about many times. If you remember um, Operation Gladio, it actually means Operation Sword. It's Italian for sword, you know, just like gladiators. And the um, the article was Operation Gladio, NATO's Secret War for International Fascism. And this was something that was put together by NATO. They had a, uh, they wanted to have a leave-behind army with weapons that were stashed. In case the Russians had some kind of a lightning strike into Europe, they'd be able to uh, already have armed, have an armed resistance that could engage in guerrilla warfare against the successful Russians. Well, that never happened. But after about 20 years, they started false flag operations, uh, acting as if they were communists. You had an interesting creation of an army of communists. And, and the foot soldiers were true believers. Most of them. But the people who were running the thing at the top were NATO. And they were running this as anti Western, anti NATO. So NATO is running this anti NATO organization because they want to create chaos. Remember? How do you do this stuff? Well, you do it from the inside, you do it with disruption, and you do it iteratively. And so you had people like NATO, Kissinger, he was a big part of Operation Gladio. Uh, the way it was used in the 1970s. And of course, Steve Pachenik, uh, Alex's favorite commentator on the Sting and the January the 6th stuff. Uh, there was, And the reason this article was written was um, to focus on some statements that were made by a, a guy by the name of Yves Geren Serac. I've not seen him before. That's what I thought was interesting about this. The person that uh, many have called the Black Ops grand master behind Operation Gladio. He wrote the basic training and propaganda manuals, which can be fairly described as the Gladio Order of Battle. Uh, he was an agent provocateur, an assassin, a bomber, an intelligence agent, the, intelligent, uh, the intellectual grandmaster behind the strategy of tension. That was essential to the success of Operation Gladio, the strategy of tension. Well, what is that about? Well, he said, our belief is that the first phase of political activity ought to be to create the conditions favoring the installation of chaos. Isn't it interesting? (laughs) You know, they leave these little breadcrumbs around everywhere. Do you remember Get Smart with uh, (laughs) uh, Don Adams? Uh, he he was for an organization that was called Control, and the bad guys were an organization that was called Chaos. Uh, isn't it interesting? I wonder. <laughs> it even shows up in the comedies, doesn't it? So uh, they were favoring the installation of Chaos in all the structures of the government. In our view, the first move we should make is to destroy the structure of the democratic state under the cover of communist and pro-Soviet activities. We have people who have infiltrated these groups. So in uh, Italy, they were called the Red Brigade. Uh, They were openly favoring Marxism, and yet it was being run by NATO, demanding NATO be removed, and trying to overthrow the government so they could put in their own uh, government. Interesting, isn't it, the parallels, I think, to January the 6th and Stop the Steal. Isn't it most important? The first phase of political activity needs to be installing chaos. What have we seen? Well, you know, there's another phase to it. He says the two forms of terrorism can provoke such a situation. You can have a breakdown in the state. So he said you can have blind terrorism. We haven't seen anything like this, like we saw in Italy, where they were going around uh, kneecapping uh, uh, business leaders, you know, oh, you know, you're capitalists, we're going to, you know, cripple you by uh, shooting you in the knees and that type of thing. Or assassinations. So you can have just blind terrorism, uh, just indiscriminate violence against the masses, or you can have selective terrorism where you eliminate chosen people. But he says this destruction of the state must be carried out under the cover of communist activities because we don't. Want them to know who we are, of course. But he said, popular opinion must be polarized in such a way that we are being presented as the only instrument capable of saving the nation. Now, I want you to think about what's happened in the last few years.
2: Right?
1: How many times, as a matter of fact, it was last Friday, and I, I got to apologize for losing my temper. I, I was uh, concerned about it all, all over the the weekend. I, I hate. You know, just losing my temper and screaming at somebody, which is what I did on Friday. Uh, But the guy came back and said, well, you know, as bad as Trump was, even though he's put out this bioweapon that is killing people left and right, crippling people, sterilizing people, you know, he's our only hope. It's like, wow, how far down this plan are you really? Isn't this the same thing that we've seen? You know, we have, we're now, what were we told after the election? After Trump had locked us down for a year, after he'd done all kinds of unconstitutional things, and I'm not just talking about the pandemic, I'm talking about gun control by executive order, then locking us down, then uh, coming out, even to the extent, well, you know, he talked about hydroxychloroquine. He talked about hydroxychloroquine, the next thing he starts rambling on about injecting bleach into your veins or something. And, And so he thoroughly discredits it. He was there to discredit, not to offer the idea of hydroxychloroquine. He never did anything to block the actions of state actors who said, no, we're not going to let you uh, prescribe hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Uh, we will take away your medical license or threaten to. Uh, you better not do it, it was in, in uh, Michigan. Whitmer put out rules from the state medical board telling pharmacists and doctors, first of all, doctors, you don't prescribe this. Pharmacists, you don't fill this, all this type of stuff. Where was he about that? I mean, he's giving her tens of billions of dollars. Why didn't he do anything about that? Well, you know, after all of the stuff that had happened, I'd say in the last uh, two years of uh, him being in, after all of that, we were told after the election, after he stood down and allowed a new, a brand new form of corruption, which now he has embraced. Oh yeah, we will do ballot harvesting, and we'll do it better than they do it. He wasn't opposed to ballot harvesting ever, because he could have stopped it. You know, he it was his lockdown election that generated that. So after all of that. We were told after the election, Trump is our only hope. We had to stop the steal. We had to go on January the 6th to the Capitol, all the rest of this stuff. That was one of the worst scams I have ever seen in my life. And the constant use of someone like Steve Pachinik, who was at the very heart of Operation Gladio, to push this chaos, to push the idea that there's only one person and we got to save him, and we got to do whatever it takes, up to and including violence with this stuff. That set up all the people who went to Washington, D.C., to peacefully protest, who didn't realize that nothing had been done and nothing was being done, nothing would be done, to actually fight this on the basis of corruption. See, so that's why I disagree with the people of Fox News and the commentators like Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson. Yeah, you know, that that's Trump is just crazy. You know, we got the elect- they don't ever address the real issues of corruption in elections. And they're massively corrupt. And so why would you why would you do all of this and not address the mail aspect of it, the machine aspect of it, and even the two-party political system and the control of the ballot and the debates aspect of it? Why would you think that any of these elections are for real. Of course there was fraud in it. Uh, That was not a ridiculous idea. What was a ridiculous idea was stop the steal in January the 6th. The only purpose of that was, again, to create chaos and to create an enemy class of the state. You see, Trump is our only hope. If we are conservatives, we're told, And now the left has now successfully portrayed anybody who questions their narrative about anything as MAGA extremists who are a threat. And so we have now uh, got the target put on our back if we are not part of that camp. And of course, they want to believe that everybody is in one camp or the other. The objective of the operation is to completely disrupt all social relations and all interactions to create feelings of uncertainty, to create polarization. Is this not what happened with the Trump lockdown, with the lab leak narrative that has evidently no solution? You notice how they throw these things out? We got the lab leak problem. No, be afraid because there's nothing you can do about it. We can't stop the gain of function stuff, never will. We're gonna keep doing it. Uh, Be very afraid of um, corruption in elections but we'll never let you do anything about it. You know, it's just there to create a sense of hopelessness and frustration that you can't do anything about it. These are manufactured crises that they manufactured in order to make you feel hopeless and helpless. And then find a group that can be scapegoated for the wide societal collapse. Well, that will be the January 6th people or the Trump MAGA people, all labeled as extremist conservatives. And anybody then who questions anything that they do, even if you're not a Trump supporter, or MAGA supporter, then you get put into that as well. And then present present yourself as the best choice for restoring order. And as we're being divided into a civil war, that's happening on both sides. The Democrats are the best choice for restoring order, they say. The Republicans say, well, no, we are. And actually, Donald Trump is the best source for that. So you see, CIA and NATO and Pachinik and Alex Jones just flipped the switch. On um, it flipped the narrative around for Gladio. Instead of blaming the Marxists, you, know, you create a chaotic system situation that's going to blow up in everybody's face. You, create, uh, you, you take your own supporters and get them labeled as enemies. They just flipped the script on this thing. That's what we've been looking at. Uh, that's what I see when I see what Fox News is doing and Tucker and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. So it's, uh, it's just amazing to me to uh, see how we're going through exactly the same thing. Of course, Pachenik knows exactly what's happening with it. You Who's know, the guy who went there after they kidnapped the Italian prime minister, Aldo Moro? Uh, about a decade later, they did an investigation in Italy. Zero coverage in the U.S. But what they found was that, you know, Kissinger and his henchman, Steve Pachenik, uh, Alex Jones' favorite commentator on the election, uh, ordered the murder of Aldo Morrow. He was a leftist prime minister who had figured out what was going on. So the new obsession of these people is the 15-minute city. And we're going to talk about that when we return.
0: But unlike most revolutions, where the people rise against a real economic oppression, In our case here in Boston, we are fighting for purely an abstract principle. It is, however, not nearly so abstract as the young gentleman supposes. The issue involved here is one of monopoly. Today, the British government will monopolize the sale of tea in our country. Tomorrow, it will be something else.
1: Good night Show. Yeah, then it was the monopoly of tea, the monopolization of tea. Now it's going to be the monopolization of the sale of energy, of food, of everything they can think of. Uh, so uh, I've got a comment here from uh, on Rockfan from uh, Angus Mustang and a tip. Thank you very much, Angus. He says, "Let the uh, scientists," quote unquote. <laughs> and the others try to force climate change down our throats and set an example of rationing and starve themselves to death. Yes, exactly. Well, they believe that they're not going to be affected by this. They will find out that just like all these other people and all these other revolutions, uh, that it will eventually come for them, just as uh, Robosphere eventually uh, went to uh, the guillotine. The Media's New Obsession. This is coming out of Australia. This is a uh, substack called uh, Dystopian Down Under by Rebecca Barnett. Uh, talking about how uh, anything that criticizes a narrative is immediately dismissed as a conspiracy theorist, and they're done, right? Now, the media's new obsession 15 minute conspiracy theories. She says they need to work on their poker face. In recent years, conspiracy theories were once almost unheard of, have now spread like wildfire, with a growing number of Australians now skeptical of things like vaccines, 5G and election results, reports, news.com.au. Under, she said, an advertising banner for Pfizer's latest COVID vaccine ambassador, Pink, her new album, Trust Fall, is presumably about the global decline of trust in media and government. Wow, isn't that amazing? You know, I remember when, when I was in high school, and, and younger is all of the recording artists were anti-establishment now they're doing commercials for pfizer uh, the real government anyway 15 minute cities also smart cities really the article says they're simply a common sense way of attempting to boost livability for residents you know you got all these different and, and places where they're rolling it out big time paris is the first place Paris was the first place that they came up with a 15-minute idea where they formalized that concept. But, of course, the smart cities are something that came out of the UN and the world economic forfeiture, uh, foreclosure people, if you will. But uh, Paris, now you're seeing it Melbourne, London, Edmonton, and Oxford, and also I think at Canterbury. It's also in Canterbury as well. Uh, Anyone who's ever faced a long and painful commute will immediately see the appeal of having the daily essentials at their fingertips. Well, that's a very different thing. I mean, when anybody looks for a place to live, whether you're buying a home or renting an apartment, you always look at all the amenities that are around there. And that's one of the things that they always tell you on Realtor.com, for example. And that's a very different thing than saying, but you can't go anywhere else. That's what the 15-minute cities are. Uh, some They go from 5 to 10 to 15, in some cases 20-minute cities, depending on how densely packed the city is. But the reality that's here, and the thing that people are having a problem with, is not amenities. That's the way it's being spun by the mainstream media. Oh, these are just a bunch of paranoid conspiracy theorists who don't know. You know they're angry about the conspiracy to keep them from traveling to other areas uh, other than their immediate little village that's been created for them. Uh, They said, global Australians who cannot appreciate common sense or convenience have been, quote-unquote, suckered into these, quote, dangerous conspiracies. These, quote, unhinged conspiracy theorists actually believe that smart cities are, quote, part of a secret plan by global elites to restrict people's freedom and movements. I don't think it's a secret plan. <laughs> they're they're publicly talking about it. Uh, you're the ones that are trying to keep it secret from the public. But it's not a secret plan. They brag about it again. Smart cities for dumb slaves. That's what this is really about. Anytime you see something that's smart anymore, you can better you you have to better understand that it's all about surveillance and control. That's why they call it smart. It's got it's got some kind of a, a CPU or, or you know microprocessor is going to be um, uh, watching and reporting everything that you're doing and then eventually it'll shut down anything that it doesn't like you doing uh, so I just have to say if there is no force if there's no coercion uh, why are people destroying the barricade? remember this that I showed you a couple of weeks ago in Oxford
0: in the dead of night a hooded figure removes a base plate for a bonard then pour cement into the hole. The aim, to make it hard to install a new one. This footage, obtained exclusively by ITV Meridian, is one of hundreds of incidents of vandalism in Oxford's local traffic neighborhoods. Those removing the barriers often don't even wait for the cover of night. Now, new figures show just how much this kind of activity is costing. Delivery drivers, some filmed flouting the rules condone it but i can understand it because they're not listening to us and that's where the
1: anger's coming in you know that and people being stuck in traffic there is no democracy in oxford
0: once on vandalism or a form of civil disobedience
1: they're not listening to us of course they're not they're stakeholders you're not you don't have a stake in any of this you're not holding any of the cards they hold all the cards this is multinational corporate governance they don't really care. Uh, the The elections and the government structures are there uh, just to make you happy, make you to give you a sense of control. It's as phony as the elections in the prisoners' village. It makes absolutely no no difference what you do with it. Um, I, I still have. Uh, Uh, You know, I I may sound cynical, but I still have a lot of optimism about local elections. But I think that that's um, there's indications that uh, besides the usual uh, corruption, uh, these voting machines are going to allow them to rig everything from top to bottom and everything from one side of the country to the other. They have to go. It's just that simple. All this stuff about Dominion. and, And again, Fox News is not pushing back against Dominion on just the general terms of um, you know, electronic voting machine. That's what they should have talked about. This is not simply the problem of one company. And that was a part of the, uh, you know, the inaccurate, distracting lie that was easily discredited, that was the centerpiece of what Trump and the people supporting him were telling everybody. Oh, it's Dominion, right? No, it's all of them. It's Hart, it's E S N S, and it's all of these companies. Get rid of all electronic voting machines. If they aren't corrupt from the inside, they're easily hacked from the outside. And we've seen that over and over again. I've talked about that for years. I talked about it before the 2016 elections, as a matter of fact. Uh, anyway, for the past three years, uh, writes uh, Dystopian Down Under, uh, for the past three years, mainstream media has been completely obsessed with conspiracy theories without irony. Well, I would say that's without hypocrisy because irony is not intentional. Hypocrisy is. That's the difference between the two. Anyway, while mainstream media has relentlessly and self consciously published the most outlandish and demonstrably false theories, while they do that, they call everybody else conspiracy theorists. While they have locked down the world, uh, they call us conspiracy theorists. You know, and fear, they call us paranoid when they've done that. Uh, They've uniformly defamed and insulted anybody who's skeptical of their campaigns. You're labeled a conspiracy theorist. You're labeled stupid, unhinged, selfish, and so on. Right-wing extremists. Of course, that uh, covers all of that. And so uh, the mainstream media, whether you're talking about Australia or talking about the U.S., they use the same tactics because, again, this is a global takeover. They've all got the same plan, uh, the same goal. Globally, the same thing is happening in every country. Uh, the 15-minute cities uh, to go ahead, and the will of the people be damned, she writes. And that's exactly what is happening. Again, in Oxford, uh, the Heritage Party leader there, David Curtin, says that the majority of the residents do not want it. Do they care? No. That the council intends to go ahead with the plans regardless of the will of the people, he said. Um, you know, that's a Heritage Party. I think that's a good name for it. If I was going to start a new party today, what I would call it would be the Freedom and Dignity Party because I put it in direct opposition to B.F. Skinner, who said we need to be beyond freedom and dignity. What they seek to do is to treat us as animals, mere accidents of evolution, not created in the image of God. That's why they take away your dignity. And then when they take away your dignity, they can take away your freedom. And we have to, uh, that is the fundamental lie behind all of this. But uh, the guy who's there with the Heritage Party there in Oxford says they're making a, of, a, a, mock, a mockery of democracy. Well, that's what has become. <laughs> it's become democracy has become de mockery, and uh, that's exactly where we are at this point in time. It is a mockery of the systems of self-government that we've had, and it, a good part of it is the elections and the ballots and the rest of the stuff. We only have a global corporate governance that openly mocks us and then if we happen to talk about what they're mocking us about, then their lackeys in the media say, uh, you're just a paranoid conspiracy theorist, even though they put out publicly stated their plans of slavery for us. As a matter of fact, they said uh, in Oxford they had a a large number of people show up for a scheduled meeting, about two hours, carrying homemade placards uh, placards against this stuff. I said it was truly an eclectic mix of tweed jackets juxtaposed against gray baggy trackies and edgy high tops contrasted to <laughs> uh, athletic shoes. So it's a, a cross-section. I guess they thought they could get away with it, but even in a university town, liberal university town, that is accustomed to all kinds of arbitrary control, uh, the people had enough there in Oxford. Can they or will they do anything about it, though? That is the question. We'll be right back.
3: Let me tell you, The David night Show, you can listen to with your ears. You can even watch it by using your eyes. In fact, if you can hear me, that means you're listening to The David Night Show right now. Yeah, good job. Uh, <laughs> and you want to know something else? You can find all the links to everywhere to watch or listen to the show at thedavidnightshow.com. That's a website.
1: Yeah, that's a website. Uh, you're going to need to go to the website because we're being cut off on social media so much uh, that uh, you you won't see it recommended on social media. Let's talk a little bit, though, about, I, I know that uh, Tony Arderman and um, Don Jeffries and Billy Ray Valentine talked about this extensively yesterday. They did a great job. I just want to give you my take on it from having seen some of this stuff from the inside, the same kind of corruption. The Dominion lawsuit, of course, uh, as this is going back and forth, the Dominion lawyers uh, put out as part of a motion to the judge, they used that to leak some of the testimony that had already been collected. And to put it, uh, as uh, the Fox News lawyers are saying, to uh, put that there out of context. But I think what you see there is, is uh, fairly damning. Uh, the Dominion voting systems has a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. Again, it's ridiculous. Um, I don't know the company's worth that much ever, but uh, what brought this on was to focus on one or two companies. The other one was Smartmatic. I've talked about Smartmatic as a as uh, you know the a good example of the genesis of this whole thing. Smartmatic was uh, one of the first and the biggest. Of course, they've changed management many many times now. They're no longer controlled by the people in Venezuela. You have these mergers and purchases and things like that. But Smartmatic was originally created by a couple of friends of Hugo Chavez. And they made sure that he won elections. And it's a matter of historical fact that Smartmatic has been accused of rigging elections in Brazil, in the Philippines, and in multiple Mexican provinces. Uh, No question about that. Those are allegations and hearings that have been had and public hearings. As a matter of fact, if you look at uh, one of the Brazilian elections, it was after this uh, Marxist criminal who's in there now, Lula, uh, went to jail for a while. Uh, After he went to jail, the person who replaced him, the woman, I can't remember her name, uh, she was uh, very unpopular. The day before the election, she showed up at a football match, what we call soccer here. Big crowd, um, somewhere between 60,000, 100,000 people, booed her off the stage Uh, She was incredibly unpopular by any measure. And the next day, you know, or or over the weekend as they're having the voting, uh, she is losing by a significant amount. And then all of the election machines went down. And then when they came back, she had reversed positions. And she was winning with about the same kind of large margin that she had been losing before. So uh, that along with especially a a high-profile case in the Philippines. This is why I was talking about it before the 2016 election. And one of the reasons I was talking about it before the 2016 election was because the Republican Party in Utah had brought that company in to run their primaries for the party. And I said at the time, I said, look, um, they may be using this. Try to ensure that uh, Trump does not get in because, remember, the Utah Republican Party there with Romney and Evan Mullins' former CIA guy, they were trying to pull everything they could to uh, block Trump. And I just thought that Smartmatic was part of it. And I said, well, you know, the 2020 election is going to be a major hacking fest because nobody wants to get rid of these electronic voting machines. And I talked for years about how every year they have a Black Hat conference and DEF CON in Las Vegas in August. Of course, they didn't have it Uh, last uh, couple of years conveniently for them. But, you know, they would do things like set up a replica of a state board of elections website, and they'd have teenagers, you know, uh, in high school and under, come in and hack it. And it wasn't whether or not they could hack it, but they were competing to see who could do it the quickest. It's a a joke. The whole electronic voting machine, the whole, you know, uh, collection, on the web of all these votes it's all a joke folks some mirage and this isn't about dominion or even smartmatic it's about the entire system you got to go back to paper ballots and human observers if you want to have a, a, a legitimate um election and you got to open up the ballot and you got to open up the debates it's just that simple it's not it's not rocket science rocket science is how they steal things from you okay they create these incredibly complex technological systems that they control, they can hack. We need to go back to basics. Watching these people and, you know, hand-counted votes. I know they've had this type of stuff around for a very long time. You, As soon as they put in even mechanical voting uh, machines. In Chicago, you had uh, people who were, taking, you know, had a... a uh, um, bunch of voting machines in the back of their car or something like that. So this is something that has been around for a very long time, many different ways, but it's been put on steroids now and it's been escalated with the latest advances in technology. Uh, This is, (laughs) uh, this is high tech theft now, but one of the things that came out in this deposition is the role of Paul Ryan, Romney's vice president candidate, vice presidential candidate, former house speaker, Paul Ryan who blocked all real reform of the agenda. You know, He made sure that he cemented in the agendas that uh, the uh, Democrats had put in, whether you're talking about the border or anything else. Okay, We're talking about Obamacare or the border. All these things that were hot-button issues that were supposed to define the difference between Republicans and Democrats, Paul Ryan made sure that what the Democrats had done under Obama stayed in place. And that was the role of Mitt Romney and his running mate, Paul Ryan. To make sure in 2012, that regardless of which side won, we were going to get Obamacare or Romney Care, which was the same thing as Obamacare. Mitt Romney had put that together in Massachusetts, where he was uh, governor, with Ted Kennedy, and it worked exactly the same as Obamacare. So, you know, they have these elections where uh, you go back to the uh, 1992 election where it's Clinton and George H.W. Bush. Both of them were there to make sure that NAFTA came in. And when you had Ross Perot come in as, uh, to point out that you don't want to have NAFTA, that's when the gloves came off for him, right? So, you know, you look at, you look at that, we're going to have NAFTA one way or the other. We're going to have Obamacare or Romney Care. we don't really care, but it's going to be the same thing, one way or the other. Uh, that was the role of Paul Ryan. Well, this guy is now on the board of directors of Fox News, and he's got a lot of editorial control does it start to make sense now for what Fox News has become? You look at the Pfizer commercials, you know, no question about uh, who pays. Good Morning them. America is brought to yeah. you by Pfizer. Not just Good CBS Morning America, but watch all sponsored of sponsored by Pfizer. Anderson Cooper 3 Yeah, not just CNN but Fox News as well. So we know who's paying them and now we know who is controlling editorial content as well, the board of directors, Paul Ryan, uh, figuring very prominently in this deposition. In terms of, you know, going back and forth with Rupert Murdoch, the CEO, talking about what the opinion people, I mean, that's what people tuned into uh, Fox News for. They could get the same, you know, Shepard Smith's, uh, you know, controlled news. They could get the same stuff exactly fed to them at CNN. As a matter of fact, you know, I don't know which network he went to, whether it's CNN or MSNBC, but, you know, he's interchangeable. He's just a widget. He could be anywhere. All that stuff is essentially the same. And it's controlled. What they talk about is controlled, and the way they talk about it is controlled. But if you want to get an opinion, that's what people tune into Fox News for. And yet, this is what we found from the opinion people. According to the lawsuit, the board also discussed the, quote, future of cable and streaming services. Uh, They said, um, according to the lawsuit, they talked about quote super serve and expand our loyal audience. That was one of the headlines of what they wanted to do. So they want to serve the audience, what the audience wants to hear. You see, as we were looking at the Twitter files that were put out by Matt Taibbi, I think he focused on it directly. He said, "Look, this is what news has become," and you can see it. You can see how you know CNN and MSNBC they get all re, they get all Democrat politicians who come on and they're so deferential to them and agreeable to them. And uh, Fox News does the same thing with all Republicans. And so, as Matt Taibbi said, this has all become, it's not so much news or even their opinions as it is seeking out a demographic. And that's exactly what this is about. Super serve and expand our loyal audience and to keep them in the Fox News ecosystem. And. um that means that you don't offend Trump. So according to the lawsuit, uh, he confirmed uh, that uh, the inflection point was not just one day, said Paul Ryan. It was the whole time between the post-election November-December time frame. He says we're in a big inflection point. Well, yeah, the, um, he said Ryan knew that these conspiracy theories were baseless, they said. Uh, so, you know, the, uh, the elections, frankly, are, are baseless because of uh, the way they're operating them. And these, uh, in the back and forth, Rupert Murdoch said that Hannity was, quote, privately disgusted, unquote, by Trump. But he was, quote, scared to lose viewers. Uh, that is in the new court filing. So, as I said, The Dominion lawyers are putting out this stuff, uh, and um, I would imagine that that is, um, you know, I don't know what kind of a context you would put that into to explain that away. Say he's privately disgusted by Trump. Um, You know, I don't think he's uh, talking about one particular incident there, because this is what I've seen, and this is what disgusts me about the media. You know, I know these guys know what Trump is like. They know what he's like. They know what his policies are doing and are going to do. They know what he's like behind the scenes. I've seen this with Alex Jones. I've seen it with Roger Stone. How many times have they gone off of the Trump uh, wagon only to return after their base gets angry with them? They're not mending the fences with uh, Trump. They're mending the fences with their bases. I don't even know where they are right now. I guess they're back on. I mean, you remember right after January the 6th, it was recorded by the guy who was doing a documentary film with Roger Stone. And he was, uh, I've never seen, well, I've seen Roger Stone be pretty angry about stuff. But I mean, you know, there, there's absolutely no question about his hatred and vilification of Trump at that point. It was intense. It was visceral. I've seen the same thing from Alex. I've seen it privately many, many times. I've seen it publicly, and you have too, many, many times. His rants against Trump, that's it, I'm done. Yeah, if he doesn't come out against this vaccine in 30 days, I'm done. Well, he's 30 days, Trump doesn't do anything. Alex is back on the bandwagon for Trump. Uh, Why? Because they will lie to you so that you follow them and give them money. It's just that simple. I think it's disgusting, frankly. This kind of hypocrisy and, and this kind of, you know, Pied Piper journalism really disgusts me. Uh, and they, they, don't even, they don't even have uh, an understanding of where they're going. The filing discussed that Rupert Murdoch and Scott, the CEO of Fox News, discussed the day before the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, having Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and Laura Ingram— issuing a joint statement declaring Biden had won and putting an end to the election conspiracy theories. Uh, This is coming from left-wing mediaite. That's why they call it the January the 6th attack. It was a false flag attack. It's agent provocateurs. It was destined to fail. And even more importantly, it was destined to never make a difference in a positive way. It had gone all of that time, all of that money, and not a single thing had been done to do even the slightest reform, not even a reform of the newly applied rigging rules that had happened in Georgia. What did Trump do? Did he work with these guys to get rid of this um, uh, election where you're going to have um, you know, the, the ballot harvesting? No, they did it exactly the same way and turned the Senate over to the Democrats. And then it happened the day before this, January the 5th, on that Tuesday, we had already had an election where they, they, they ran it under the same Trump rules, same Trump lockdown rules. The Georgia Republican Party with Kemp and all the rest of these people didn't change anything. Trump didn't even try to get them to change anything for that. And so as a result, you know, and they, they missed all the uh, deadlines to get anything done, uh, to talk to state legislatures. They couldn't get the crooked courts to even listen to the case. But they missed all the deadlines. That's why I said this is a, um, a pointless exercise at this point. So all of that stuff um, was, was baked in. They did absolutely nothing to save the Senate from Democrat control. And then the next day, you have January the 6th. Uh, so Scott told Rupert, they said, privately, they're all there, meaning Tucker, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram. Privately, they are all there, he said, quote unquote. But, quote, we need to be careful about using the shows and pissing off the viewers. That's all they care about. They don't care about the country. They don't care about Trump. They don't like Trump. They don't like the country. Uh, They want your money. They want you to follow them, buy their products, take the Pfizer drugs. We'll be right back. to the David night show well I think it's kind of interesting that uh, people are so upset with Apple because they put in a, a feature a new feature into the latest operating system and of course they push the updates on everybody uh, relentlessly uh, unlike the um, <laughs> unlike the Microsoft thing they don't Uh, force you to get an update, but they relentlessly hector you about it. And so this is a feature that's part of iOS 16.1 called Clean Energy Charging. It will um, only charge devices when lower carbon emission electricity on the grid is available. And so with this feature turned on, uh, it looks at uh, some evaluation software somewhere. Uh, that and I guess uh, the reality is is that maybe um, you know if they're looking at uh, your uh, electrical generation for the uh, grid in your area, and if maybe they got a lot of solar, then maybe they'll let you charge your phone during the day, but then not at night, or charge it at a very very slow level, and it's getting a lot of people very upset. Now this is not something that you have to do; uh, you can turn this off in your power settings, but if you update to their system. Uh, what it does is it makes this, turns this on by default. And so it has really gotten a lot of people <clears throat> upset about it. But the reality is, that, you know, whether, whatever kind of smartphone you buy, whether you're getting it from Google or you're getting it from Apple operating systems, uh, they're both evil. <laughs> they're both big brother devices. I've said for the longest time, uh, it, it came out It was, um, when we had the uh, Snowden leaks. Well, the NSA series of slides that was uh, a part of those leaks was only reported in Germany. Der Spiegel uh, ran the slides, but nobody else did. And so I've talked about this a great deal. And and what it did was it showed uh, three slides talking about the iPhone. And the first one said, who would have thought this is coming from the NSA? They said, who would have thought in 1984, and they show the 1984 Mac Super Bowl commercial. Next one is that this would be Big Brother. And it shows Steve jobs holding up an iPhone. And the third slide shows people lined up at the Apple store. And it says, and that the zombies would line up to pay for it themselves. That's the NSA's uh, picture of you, how they characterize you. You Yeah, who would have thought that Apple would have put out big brother and that the zombies would have paid for their big brother device themselves. So, um, here we are. Yeah. Uh, you want to charge your phone? Well, I I don't think that the power grid in your area is green enough so we're not going to let you charge your phone. While Apple is forcefully trying to reduce the carbon footprint of iPhone users to fight climate change, don't bring up the sobering reality about all the carbon emissions that it takes to mine lithium and other rare earth metals for Apple products. Also, don't bring up company executives such as Tim Cook who fly on private jets everywhere they want to go, and of course, don't bring up the slavery It's not just the lithium, but it's also the cobalt mines. Uh, Yeah, don't talk about any of that stuff. And don't talk about the fact that the NSA is using energy on your phone to spy on you and to store everything that they scrape about you. So users are very upset about this. Um, Reports of uh, carbon emissions from local power plants, they use that as information to determine if and when the phone can recharge. It is activated by default. You can get rid of it, but uh, just having it on there got a lot of people upset. In Washington state, they're now imposing new climate policy and gasoline prices are already skyrocketing. They're already doing cap and trade in California, and now they're doing it in Washington state. One of the reasons that gas is not as expensive in Washington state is that they have not imposed customized blends of gasoline as they have in California. But the cost has surged $0.40 per gallon since the new year. Um, A new law designed to penalize greenhouse gas emissions went into effect at the beginning of the year. Washington businesses that produce more than 25,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year will either need to purchase allowances from the state's Department of Ecology at quarterly auctions, or they'll have to trade with him with another business later. This is known as cap and trade, yeah, where they, um, the, the traders, <laughs> and you spell that T-R-A-I-T-O-R-S, where the traders cap your energy use, uh, but don't have any limit on how much they can charge you for anything. Since the law was implemented, the cost of gas in Washington State has skyrocketed from nearly $3.70 to $4.10. The final cost of the allowances will be announced March the 7th and determined by the result of the state's first auction hosted Tuesday. The state's legislature anticipates that the allowance program will generate more than $1.7 billion through 2024, which will then be reinvested into efforts to reduce greenhouse gases. Let me translate that for you. They're going to rob consumers of another $1.7 billion, and then they're going to take that money and hand it out to their friends who are participating in this greenwashing cash for fear plan. That's what this is really about. You know, when you look at this, and you look at all these cap-and-trade things and the carbon credits and all the rest of this stuff, as I've said for the longest time, this has been forever. It has been a kind of religion and these things are like indulgences right let let me pay you for the sin of using energy well who do you pay right who am i supposed to pay um i have to purchase these allowances i have to I have to pay the state of washington to be able to sin and use energy look it's time that we overthrow we need a reformation of this right that was one of the key sticking points uh, in Germany They were coming in and said, well, you know, if it's a holy day, you know, you're not going to be able to open your business. And all of a sudden, the holy days got, in, got so extensive that unless um, you were open on a holy day, you couldn't be open at all. That's where we get the term holidays, right? That's going to be a holy day you can't operate. However, if as a business... You want to give us some cash, we'll let you remain open. How is that any different from this? It's not. It's fundamentally the same thing. This is a corrupt pagan religion, and now it comes complete with indulgences that you buy from the state that is pushing it to you. And they're going to reinvest this, they tell you. All right? Oh, great, you're going to reinvest it. It means you're going to hand it out to your pals. Except for California, the average price of gas in Washington is more than 27 cents higher than the rest of the West Coast. The average price of a gallon of gas in California, which also has a cap-and-trade law, is more than $4.58. So while the price under this indulgence system, while the price of gasoline in Washington has gone up by 40 cents per gallon, it is still 48 cents per gallon more expensive in California because they've got cap-and-trade and they've got custom blends you got to go to a barista to get your gasoline blends in <laughs> California. <laughs> so, uh, you know, whatever I'll have whatever Newsom is having. Uh, that's, that's what I'll take. Uh, the Washington legislature has never had the opportunity to invest this amount of money in climate and clean energy, said a Washington state director for Nonprofit Energy Transition Advocacy Group, right? Never had this much money to throw around to their friends, which is so hopelessly corrupt. Isn't it? Um, so America wants to electrify everything. We want everything running off the grid because everything must be centrally controlled, so they can so they can surveil whatever we're using, right? In terms of energy. And um, the problem is, is and so we don't have enough minerals. You know, we got limitations of lithium and cobalt and other things like that. And I'm going to talk right after this. About what is happening with the coming lithium wars with China, this is one of the big reasons why they're making uh, China, uh, you know, escalating the tensions. And of course, there's always been tensions with China, and China has been the handpicked successor to the United States as global leader by the globalists for quite some time. And um, so, you know, this is this has been there. But again, looking beyond that agenda, uh, the fact that there's going to be this competition for the minerals that are going to be necessary for this battery operated economy. Yeah. Yeah. We have climate change, batteries not included. Uh, so minerals we need, we need to have more grid capacity, except they're shutting down grid capacity. If everybody's going to be running all their transportation off of the grid, using battery operated EVs, using, uh, electric, uh, burners, no other things are going to be allowed. If they're going to use, Uh, mandate that you heat your home that way. We don't have the grid capacity for that. We don't have the charging stations for that. We don't have the consumer cash to pay for all this stuff either because all this stuff is more expensive. Or we have to go out and buy things that we don't need because the current things that we have that are working just fine, thank you, are not going to be allowed. So we don't have the minerals, we don't have the grid capacity, we don't have the charging stations, we don't have the consumer cash. Now it turns out we don't have enough trained electricians to build it either. <laughs> Not a problem. They'll just tell us, hey, you know, we had an emergency. We had to shut everything down. We had to do whatever we could. But, you know, um, sorry it all went wrong. Sorry you lost everything. That was never our intention. We did our best. You know, we, we meant well. It was an emergency. And we just didn't have time to test any of this stuff. We didn't have time to develop something that's going to work. We just got to get rid of what you've got now right? Got to lock you down. And so now America doesn't have enough electricians. This is coming from the Wall Street Journal. They're needed to install the new electric car chargers, to install the new mandated heat pumps, and the new mandated electric ranges, and the new mandated electric this and electric that. But we don't have them. Just like we don't have the electricity to provide for all this stuff. I mean, we would have to be growing the. You see anybody? Growing power generation in your area? I don't. As a matter of fact, most areas, what they're doing is they're shutting down existing power plants that work just fine because of all this unicorn fart um, nonsense. Electricians say they're booked several months out. They're struggling to find enough workers to keep up with demand, and so wages are going up, prices are going up. They're worried that they won't be able to keep up as government climate incentives kick in. Incentives, yes. We will incentivize it. We will bribe you to do this. Later on, they'll blackmail us. A climate solution that um, many worry is going to actually trigger a war. In this, they're talking about geoengineering, and I've talked about this for years. All the people who said geoengineering—that's just a conspiracy theory—doesn't exist. Well, why do we have annual conventions on geoengineering theory, and why have we had them for? Decades And why did we have a weather treaty back in the 1970s after Vietnam? Why did they hand a guy who was uh, manipulating the weather in Vietnam, why did they give him an award after the Vietnam War? Well, there's a lot of stuff to show this has been happening. And I remember it was about eight years ago. I talked about one of the geoengineering conferences that they had. Uh, my favorite paper out of it was one that said, Who gets to set the thermostat? You know, you typically see this with uh, your your wife, typically wants it uh, warmer than you do. You want it cooler. Uh, we don't typically have a war over that. But uh, when you have uh, some northerly countries like Russia, I imagine they'd be just fine to set the thermostat higher if they could do that. And they say they can. Uh, other countries would uh, not want that and vice versa. So who gets to set the thermostat? Will the thermostat wars turn into thermonuclear wars? Well, that's uh, the point of this article from the Washington Post. They said it sounds like something out of science fiction. Because, you know, the Washington Post and mainstream media has been telling us for a long time, the longest time, that geoengineering doesn't exist. There's not any, um, <laughs> nobody's doing any geoengineering at all. Uh, A country suffering from heat, uh, from flooding, or from crop failures decides on its own to send out a fleet of aircraft to spray a fine sun-blocking mist into the Earth's atmosphere, reducing temperatures, providing relief to parched populations. Other countries view it as a threat to their own citizens, and they ready a military response. Uh, Again, you had Bill Gates funding these things. They'd say, well, they're experiments and so forth. Uh, but um, other people have, as they noticed, uh, these chemtrails. They call them chemtrails because they can find the residue on the ground where it's happened. call them chemtrails because they're persistent contrails. And uh, uh, again, I'll mention it, Spider Alert was uh, an application that would allow you, if you saw a cross-hatching of a lot of persistent contrails above you, uh, you could take a picture of it, you could report it, And uh, they started correlating these things together. And they noticed that there was an increase in temperature where there would be these cross-hatching things. Uh, They wanted to do this so they could send the data to congressmen who subsequently subsequently either didn't care or they were already bought off into the agenda. So the Washington Post says, geoengineering is theoretically possible. (laughs) That's where we are right now. Uh, they're, They're admitting now that it is theoretically possible. They're still thinking about it. Uh, The technique could weaken the sun's power across the globe. Well, what would that do? Oh, that would wreak havoc upon our food supply. Uh, Not just above whichever country they decided to deploy. When you stop and think about this, what are the essentials to life? Well, everything um, depends on plants growing, right? Uh, If you are a carnivore, you eat the things that eat plants. Or you can eat the plants yourself, but it all depends on plants. That's the base of our food supply system. They need sunlight and they need carbon dioxide. And what are the people in charge trying to do? Well, they want to get rid of those things. And if they can't get rid of carbon dioxide quickly enough, they want to sequester it. They want to pump it into the ground so the plants can't get to it. They're trying to starve us, literally. Uh, So, Washington Post says the White House is in the process of developing a five-year plan. How about that? Just like the commies. (laughs) The commies always had a five-year plan for everything. And so does the Biden administration. A five-year plan and a strategy for managing the technology at the behest of Congress, which mandated it last year. Of course, that was Pelosi's Congress. Of course, you would expect they would do something like that. A favorite read among some of these people is a 2020 novel. It's called The Ministry for the Future. That sounds Orwellian by Stanley Robinson. It envisions a near future in which, among other developments, India decides unilaterally to do solar geoengineering in defiance of a global ban after a heat wave kills 20 million of its citizens. So you get the idea. This is a favorite book, they said, of Barack Obama. Uh, because in it, it sells this, you know, it posits this idea that uh, everybody's dying from global warming, right? At uh, which we're seeing right now in California, uh, unbelievable amounts of snow, even in the hills of uh, L.A. <laughs> These people, I tell you. Um, yeah, it feeds that narrative. Uh, here's the reality: climate change isn't going to happen unless they geoengineer it. That's what real man-made climate change looks like. It's not you and your SUV. It's Bill Gates and the U.S. government and other governments with their planes spewing stuff out. The technology necessary to hack the atmosphere is not that complicated. They said airplanes would spray sulfur into the sky at high altitude or anything. You know, that's one of the reasons why you're seeing increases in barium in places where they're doing chemtrails. Because, you know, they can put particles like barium and aluminum and things like that up in the atmosphere, and uh, it reflects sunlight darkens things. Uh, they know this um, works, pretty much do anything. Volcanoes, large volcanoes. Um, they mentioned the 1991 eruption of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines. But of course, probably even bigger than that was a Krakatoa. I remember they did a, when I was a kid, they did a movie, Krakatoa East of Java or something like that. And, and that was such a, you know, it was a disaster film. But that was such a big volcano that it created a little mini ice age that lasted for about a decade around the world. <clears throat> you can see that in the records in uh, the UK as well. It said, so, changes to the atmosphere would shift weather patterns and create droughts. A less intense sun could, crop, could lower crop yields and lead to hunger. Yep. Of course it would. And that's by design. And by the way, you lower the CO2, it's going to reduce crop yields as well. There are concerns that temperatures could build outside the sulfur dioxide layer. There's fears that if the spraying stopped, it could unleash a catastrophic heat wave across the world. You see, the experts don't really know. The experts have got models, and the models are telling them different things. And nobody's tested any of this stuff. It is untestable, just like all of the climate MacGuffin. It's all untested and untestable. Uh, they have no basis for this. But let's talk about the lithium wars. You know, we've had, um, if you go back, interesting, um, you know, we talked last week, or actually on Monday, seemed like a week ago, so much stuff has happened the last couple of days, all this power and internet outage. But um, we talked about the fact that there's now a, a move afoot to edit Ian Fleming's James Bond novels, uh, not because of um, sexism or things like that, but because of evidently racism. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've only only looked at two Bond novels, but um, they weren't, um, you know, they didn't have the kind of content that Hollywood has put into them. But um, anyway, the um, when we talk about um, uh, got off on a on a uh, tangent here, and I forgot where I was going with it. But uh, we'll get back to it here. Let's talk about the battle for living. I know why I was talking about. It. I was going to say the person that is widely regarded as the model for Ian Fleming, James Bond, was a guy named Sigmund Riley, And I've talked about this before in light of the the way that uh, these intelligence agencies entrap people. They create their opposition, and uh, that was the way that they trapped uh, this master spy, Sigmund Riley, the uh, Russians, Secret Service, uh, Felix Derzhinsky and the uh, Cheka, Uh, created this thing, uh, the the trust, they called it. And it was essentially a honeypot to grab all the people who were in exile who were in opposition to the Bolsheviks. And so, you know, they lavished a lot of money on it, and these people would come in, and they would contribute money to this organization, and then they would plan what they wanted to do to overthrow the Bolsheviks and all the rest of this stuff, and that's how they entrapped and killed uh, the guy who was a model for James Bond, Sigmund Riley. And it's an instructive uh, lesson for us in the real world of how this operates. But if you read the novel, and there was an excellent, um, also an excellent series that was done by somebody that had Sam Neill. Remember Sam Neill? He was in Jurassic Park and many, many other things. Uh, But when he was much younger, he played the role of Sigmund Riley in a series that had about six different episodes or something in it. And... It was not just uh, the overthrow of the Bolsheviks, but he was also involved in the early days of oil and other things like that in terms of helping the British get control of oil in the Middle East. He was also involved in the military-industrial complex and the British uh, companies like Vickers selling their weapons to other countries. Um, Same type of stuff we're dealing with today. Uh, But it was... um, the early, early part of the 20th century. At the time, you had most of the ships were still running on coal. Uh, They realized that oil was going to be more effective for them, so they were making a strategic military move in order to secure supplies and to have control of energy by getting control of oil. And uh, we've seen most of the latter part of the 20th century has been uh, wars over oil, all right? And so now this is going to, if we go into this new economy that's going to be based on batteries, of course, the battle is going to be for lithium. So what is happening with lithium? As this article from uh, a political analyst on RT says, lithium is the essential mineral for these renewable energy, I'll say, scams. Uh, It will be to the 21st century what coal was to the previous two centuries, coal and oil. A pillar for the fossil-free a fossil fuel-free economy uh, the price of lithium has surged by 500 percent over the past two years and of course uh, to get to a fossil free, uh, fossil fuel- free economy is totally unnecessary uh, but that's where they're pushing and I'll just say this: uh, those of us with the will to survive and the countries with the will to survive will not participate in this scam. China's not participating in it. India is not participating in it. We're participating in it because the West is suicidal and because our leaders have betrayed us. China has become the focus of the Biden administration's efforts to regain the lead in the industry. Again, this is another key area where we're competing with them. And if you understand what is, since lithium is the basis for this economy, we are creating an economy that puts China in charge. Um, the uh, two countries are at odds with each other over who can locate and exploit lithium deposits around the planet. Whoever controls the supply chain will dominate the industry and the world, right? Uh, China has a head start, possessing both a significant amount of lithium and the ability to mine it. It is number six in the world for overall lithium resources. Uh, has uh, 5 million tons and, and 1.5 uh, tons are mineable. The US has more lithium. We have 9 million tons to China's 5 million tons. But our current mineable reserves stand at only 750,000 tons instead of 1.5 million tons. We got half the mineable uh, area that uh, they do. We have Australia that is uh, on our side, we could say, it says this article in RT. With its 5.7 million tons of lithium reserves, it could help to shift the balance in the U.S.'s favor. You know, that is unless China decides that they want to take Australia. But anyway, uh, it seems that U.S. is losing its grip on a region that is rich in lithium deposits and also one that Washington has dominated for decades, which is Central and South America. Latin America alone possesses 56% of the world's lithium deposits, the known ones. And let me just throw in here as another aside... You know, when we go back and you look at the history of oil, uh, John D. Rockefeller got his start as the Civil War began. He bought his way out; he paid somebody to serve in his place so he didn't have to go fight and die. And then he, um, people were looking for an alternative to turpentine, which had come out of the South, distilled out of pine trees and things like that, and that supply was cut off. That's when they started looking. For oil, and at the time, uh, they didn't have any sophisticated uh, exploration stuff. It's, we're talking about the 1860s. There's no sophisticated exploration. There was no sophisticated refinement or anything like that. It was really more like the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, up from the ground come a bubbling crude, and uh, so he decided that he'd become a millionaire by latching on to that. And the only place where they knew there was any oil, because it came out of the ground like a bubbling crude, was in Pennsylvania, and so. Uh, there were all these essentially mom and pop refiners all over the place um, that were, you know, just getting the oil that's bubbling up out of the ground and refining it into oil that could be used to replace uh, turpentine and things like that. You know, for lamps and for many for industrial uses and stuff. And uh, what John D. Rockefeller did was he just started buying them up. You know, just started creating a monopoly by buying up all these mom and pop refiners. And he thought he had it. He thought he had cornered the world's supply of oil by doing that in Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, you can still see that in the title. You've got Quaker State, you've got oil, a lot of things like that. But then what happened was they found oil in Texas. Uh-oh. Now the monopoly is threatened. And so what he did was he started setting up Standard Oil of Ohio so that he could put refineries there. And, uh, you know, he wasn't interested in getting, you know, trying to explore and, and find oil. That's a lot of risk. He focused on refining it because there's no risk on that. Let other people take the risk, he'd take the profits. And so he set up Standard Oil of Ohio. Uh, people would ship the um, oil up there. And he essentially did the same thing there and kind of cornered the market there. Then they found oil in Saudi Arabia. You <laughs> had the idea. The bottom line is is that right now we're talking about lithium. I think you'll be surprised how many different places lithium exists. But nevertheless, even though we kept finding new sources of oil, we kept having wars over oil uh, throughout the 20th century. The same thing will happen with lithium. Beijing has sought to invest in many lithium ventures across Americas. The U.S. has responded, Latin, you know, Central and South America. The U.S. has responded by leveraging its political power there. Uh, They are able in Mexico and Canada to do that because of the, you know, NAFTA, U.S., uh, MCA type of agreements, right? But haven't been too successful in doing this throughout uh, Central and South America because uh, you look at Bolivia, uh, not at all friendly to the U.S., very left-leaning, and they are one of the biggest uh, sources of this, Uh, lithium. But just take a look at the recent moves of China. The last thing I'll say about this, lithium industry is now reeling after China has shuttered 10% of the global supply. Now, why are they doing this? Well, the cover story, I believe, I believe it's a cover story. The cover story is that China has just realized that the area where they're getting their lithium, uh, it's a province that's known as China's lithium capital, They've just realized that, hey, they're not following any regulatory, uh, environmental regulatory uh, rules there. And, and we're going to just have to shut it down for now. Oh, really? You, you want me to believe that China is concerned about environmental regulations? <laughs> uh, they're allowed, they've got a carve out for them, for these coal power plants and all the rest of these things. They can build as many coal plants, and they are, as they wish. And, and build them as cheap and dirty as they wish. And they do the same thing with refineries. You take a look at the air quality in places like Beijing, but especially Wuhan. That was one of the things, as this was all beginning, people were saying, look at the air in Wuhan. You can basically cut it with a knife. Is that what we're seeing? This is respiratory illness. Are we seeing that instead of some virus or something? There's a chance that's possible. But uh, still, when you look at their Total disregard for air pollution, for any other kind of pollution. uh, I'm not buying this at all. I think what this is, this is another uh, central party, you know, communist, Chinese Communist Party move to exert economic control and chaos, just like the Shanghai lockdowns were. There was no reason for them to do those kind of Shanghai lockdowns and to keep them going as long as they did. That was to show the people in Shanghai who was boss, and it was also to play havoc with the supply chains. That's what this is about as well. I guarantee you that's what this is about. Just take a look at what China does and how they just could not care less uh, about any kind of pollution. They're not worried about the environment. Uh, The crackdown follows a local lithium frenzy over the past year as miners raced to feed rampant demand for the battery material. And now they're grappling with a close-up inspection by environmental officials sent from Beijing. Same kind of close-up inspections that they did over all the COVID tests and all the rest of the stuff. The sudden probe has injected a big dose of uncertainty into a lithium market that has seen prices drop. So... The lithium market was going down. China's got a lot of lithium to sell. Would they like to sell it at a low price or a high price? Well, let's sell it at a high price. So let's crack down on the supply. Let's artificially restrict the supply. It's just that simple, I think. Uh, they have, in that area, uh, they've been ordered to stop. They said that, uh, depending. Bloomberg says, depending on who the analysts are, they estimate that this goes between 8% and 13% of the global supply of lithium that the Chinese can just... Turn off like that. So, you know, they take an average of that 10% or so. Uh, Due to the ongoing probe, all mining, aside from those owned by a state-owned company. Oh. Oh, well, there you go. Another indication. Not only do we know from their history that Chinese don't give a whit about the environment or about climate change or any of the rest of the stuff, we also see that they've shut down everybody except themselves the state-run lithium mining operation is allowed to continue. They will continue and take advantage of the higher prices that the faux environmental shutdown has created. Uh, So everybody else's operation has been suspended except for the Chinese state-run one. Now, according to the calculations, as I said, uh, a month-long mining halt there, would reduce lithium output by an amount that is equivalent to about 13% of the world's total. Uh, At present, the market speculation is that the probe may stop after two sessions in China next month. See? So there's going to be a political meeting. They will decide if they want to care about the environment at that point in time or if they would like to keep making some more confiscatory profits. This is the situation that Biden and all of our world leaders have thrown us into, to put us at the mercy of this Chinese communist government. They can lock down the world, supply, you know, they, they make us dependent on them, we become dependent on them because uh, they use slave labor, uh, they use piracy of um, intellectual property, uh, they Uh, use currency manipulation, all that in the China price. And then with the China price, uh, domestic uh, production cannot compete with China, so China gets all the production. Then China shuts down the production of many things in Shanghai. And, of course, Shanghai was a major hub of transporting out anything that was made in the rest of China. They're weaponizing the economy against us. China has been put in that place. And what they're doing now with this EV-based economy is putting all that on steroids. We'll be right back. Next move. And now the David Knight Show. Let's talk a little bit about free speech and about the mob shutting people down. Um, and I said before, I said this is um, somebody that music that you just heard there. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this many times before, maybe uh, new listeners don't understand it. I do the music that we use here because one of the easiest ways for them to take you down is with a copyright strike. But I also enjoy doing it. I mean, it's, that's my hobby. Um, I've always enjoyed doing music. And now things have progressed to the stage that you can have an amazingly wide variety of instruments that you can play with a MIDI keyboard. Where you get those instruments, however, um, one of the places that I get them from is a company called Spitfire Audio out of the UK, one of my favorite providers. They've got some great free stuff. They've got some great, uh, really cheap stuff. And of course, you know, they have some very expensive libraries as well. Uh, And now this cancel culture has hit them. And um, one of the founders of this company has now been pushed out because of a tweet that he said about coming after the transgender is coming after children, which is absolutely true. But he's been pushed out because especially in the entertainment industry, uh, it is so heavily pushing the LGBT agenda that uh, if you're going to have somebody who's been accused by the cancel mob of being transphobic, that could be a death sentence to even an established company like this. So and what they do is they, uh, the way things have progressed now, I remember when this first kind of, um, at the very beginning of this electronic music and things like that, you know, we had a real renaissance in the early 70s of all kinds of new instruments. You had the Fender Rhodes electric piano. You had the Honor D6 clavinet. I had both of those. I played in bands. And, and then you had um, uh, analog synthesizers. I had an ARP 2600, which are really uh, interesting. Uh, but very, very primitive and limited compared to what you can do today because you had to have, you know, you've seen the pictures of the uh, Moog synthesizers. I think it's Moog. I never could remember if it was Moog or Moog. Uh, but um, the ones that were done by um, Walter Carlos, who, <laughs> by the way, I just thought of this. He was one of the first time I ever saw anybody have a sex change operation, it was a guy, Walter Carlos, who did Switch Tom Bach, and he did the uh the soundtrack for clockwork orange and a bunch of other things. But Switch on Bach was absolute genius. And um uh you see the pictures of it and I think they they had a guy, you know, in powdered wig and um, you know, uh, typical costume, uh sitting in front of this massive panel of patch code cords, and you've got cords being patched from one place to the other. So it was kind of this additive process. You get basic oscillators uh, that would have basic sounds. So like you might have a sine wave oscillator, and a square wave oscillator, and a, um, a you know a sawtooth os- uh, oscillator, things like that. And you could uh, vary um, the uh, shape of those waveforms, especially the square and the sine wave and the uh, sawtooth, and that would change the timbre of the sound. And you could get kind of quasi strings or quasi brass or things like that. And you could combine them in any way that you wanted to. I had ring modulators and things like that you put into it. Anyway, um, there was that kind of additive analog synthesis. And so there was just a really an explosion of technology hitting um, uh, music. And in the 1970s, you would hear it whether you were listening to pop music or you're listening to progressive rock. Um, It didn't matter. I mean, it was was everywhere, elements of it. And then... um, you know, towards uh, the end of the 70s, I guess it was, or maybe the early 80s, you started having, and and one of the first things that they did was they had uh, a Mellotron, which was actually a recording of different instruments. So you would have a little, it was physical uh, audio tape that was rolled up on a spool. And so if you would set the thing up to play a violin and you load in all of the banks of, massive number of banks of these um, violins, for example, or strings, it not necessarily be violins, but, you know, throughout the whole range of your keyboard, you load in all, you have a, a different tape loop, spring-loaded tape loop on each of these things. And when you hit the key, you would get the attack of the instrument, and then it would play it for uh, a limited amount of time. You know, you might have, uh, you know, 15, 20 seconds of that. And you did the end of the tape, right? And and so it actually was pretty good at at, uh, recording those things. Rick Wakeman had uh, a Mellotron, one of the more, um, but a lot of people had them. I I knew a guy who um, had a a band. He was in a band and um, they they turned around Florida um, and I was in a band with him briefly, but he was was also an engineer and uh, he had a Mellotron. And it was everybody that had it talked about what an unbelievable nightmare it was. There's a great clip on YouTube of Rick Wakeman joking about the Mellotron <laughs> and how much he hated it. And uh, and so my friend Lee, actually um, uh, the guy who replaced uh, Rick Wakeman, and yes, was living in Switzerland, Pat Moritz, and he had um, he had a Mellotron. He was having problems with it, and. And Lee got so good at fixing it that they sent him to Switzerland to fix his Mellotron. Anyway, um, the, um, the bottom line, it was either that or else it was his Mini Moog, uh, because Lee had modified his Mini so he could play two notes at a time instead of one. And uh, so I, it was either that or the Mellotron, but I think it was a Mellotron. But um, anyway, uh, that's kind of the way things evolved. And then all of a sudden it went digital. And if you remember, Stevie Wonder had an album called Songs in the Key of Life. And he had recorded on the keyboard things like, you know, birds and all kinds of animal sounds. And you could play his keyboard and have all that stuff there. Well, over the many decades, and it took him many decades, to get the computer speed up to where it is now. And to get the sampling up. and, And again, to make these things sound realistic, just like the Mellotron, you got to have... A, a good recording of the way the instrument is played. And so if you've got strings, you might have uh, different bowing techniques that they have in there. Uh, you'd have pizzicato and things like that. Um, so, um, you know, it's a, a large palette of things that can be there, but you can make very realistic stuff. And a lot of people use this and use it only instead of um, orchestras now to do video game soundtracks and things like that. And that's what Christian Henson did. He's a BAFTA-nominated music composer. He's done music for things like Top Gear, uh, and he's also uh, done music for uh, video games and things like that. But he was a co-founder of this company, uh, just to give you an idea of what it is. and And they have they're always trying to come up with interesting new sounds or libraries that are going to you know mimic uh, maybe you know Hans Zimmer sound or uh, going retro, uh, going back to um, uh, who's the guy that was, uh, who's the one that did, uh, Hitchcock's stuff? Um, uh, Bernard, um, uh, it's on the tip of my, uh, failing mind here. Anyway, um, <laughs> he did, anyway, the, uh, you know, they go back and get a particular sound or, you know, they would uh, set up, uh, record an orchestra in, um, heavy roads, uh, studios where, um, Bernard Herman. Yes, thank you, Bernard Herman. Why can't I remember that? How can I forget Bernard Herman, Psycho, and all the rest of this stuff? Right? Uh, he was an amazing composer. He did a lot of music for uh, Twilight Zone as well. A lot of TV shows early days had really good quality production. Um, amazing composers like Bernard Herman. Uh, but you know they might want to get John Williams' sound, so they'll record a, an orchestra in um, Abbey Road Studios or something like that, and try to get. Uh, The same types of, um, you know, offer you some combinations that are frequently used by John Williams in his orchestration. That's what they do. So Christian Henson, uh, with that company, Spitfire, had uh, tweeted out back in September. uh, He said, as a parent, I can no longer keep my mouth shut about this. I'm in full support of Glenner and J.K. Rowling. I don't know what Glenner was uh, talking about. But um, he says, please look into this. If you have a young child, it's in the post. If you have autistic children, it's probably already on your doormat. He's British. What he's saying, if you've got a young child, this is in the mail. It's on its way to you. If you've got an autistic child, they're already doing it to you. And so he said that in in, um, uh, a comment about a YouTube video uh, that somebody had... um, put up talking about how they were coming after the kids, you know, to groom them, especially the autistic kids. So I saw that as like, good for him. But then trans activists came after him. They pressured Spitfire Audio to take action against him. Uh, They tried to walk the line. The CEO apologized and said, well, Henson will be taking a break. He says his tweet has caused hurt among our community. Again, they're in the entertainment business. You're not going to do any movies today for official Hollywood if you don't have LGBT characters, especially T. And so this is why, you know, it's um, been a full-on war with J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, uh, because she defended women against this transgender insanity. And it is insanity. So now he's come out and he says that he's stepping down. As an original founder, I'm deeply saddened that Spitfire has become embroiled in something it has no involvement with. They employ a large number of people from a diverse range of backgrounds, all of whom are united in their passion for music, sound, and composing. Uh, so today, I've decided to put them first and to step back from any involvement in Spitfire, including acting in any consulting capacity. So he's just, his whole career has been canceled here. The company that he's founded been taken away from him. With a CEO and the uh, transgender mom, uh, it disturbs me to see that really does. Here's another one. This is an Australian reality TV star who I don't know, but he has been cancelled because of an Instagram post that was critical of drag queen Storytime. His agency dropped him because they said he made hurtful comments that did not align with our values. Well, what were those hurtful comments? He put up an image, and don't put this up, Travis. Um, I'll just describe it to people. Uh, An image of a drag queen, a guy dressed as a woman, uh, who would be reading at the event. The guy calls himself Charisma Bell. And the drag performer, Charisma Bell, himself posted this image. And it's disgusting. And because he reposted this disgusting image that was put up by the drag performer, he got canceled. So the drag performers, there was his legs spread and a a taco in his crotch. And in the caption, this guy, this reality TV star uh, in Australia criticized the event, said this is not fit for kids as young as three because this drag queen performance is inherently sexual. There's absolutely no way you can look at that disgusting picture and not say that it is not sexual. Everything about it is sexual and taunting. This is what they don't understand. This is why, when you look at the drug Report, how freaked out they are, and mainstream media, they're coming for the drag queens. We've been doing this for years and all the rest of this stuff. It's like, well, maybe you've been pedophiles for years, and maybe people have just awakened to this. You haven't been doing this drag queen stuff, and it is lewd. And it is the kind of thing that people should be arrested for if they do it in the presence of a minor. This is not just stopping them from doing it in the presence. They should be arrested. And with these laws, hopefully they will be arrested if they do this in the presence of a minor. Uh, So, again, Tennessee is going to be the first one to do it. There's a lot of them that are in um, in the queue to have this happen. It's passed by, I believe, both houses of the legislature Awaiting the governor's signature, I think he's going to do it. So, what they this is how they fought him. Uh, you'll see, uh, at least it was up there this morning on the Drudge Report. Maybe it was there last night, didn't have internet. Um, but <laughs> you'll, you'll see uh, a picture, supposedly, of um, the governor of Tennessee. They said, Look, you know, he's going to sign this thing to stop drag shows. And yet he was in drag. And if you look at it, it looks like some kind of a, um, you know, staying next to him is some girl in a suit wearing a hat or something. And it's obviously some kind of a high school or college skit, probably for a pep rally or something like that. Uh, put up there without context. Anyway. Um, so he says, I would personally think, said this guy who got canceled, the reality TV store in Australia. He said, I would personally think that the age of 12 is more suitable for that kind of thing. Well, I don't know. I don't know why you would do that at the age of 12. That's one of the things I always said about, what is this about PG-13? And, You know, oh, okay. Well, now you're 13 years old, so you can watch uh, this or that. Or now you're 17 years old, so you can watch an R-rated film. Um, well, how did we ever get to that point? <laughs> you know, you talk about adult film, it doesn't have anything to do with age. You know, That's one of the things that the MPAAs uh, rating system has uh, confused everybody over. Adult movies are not about movies that are for adult people. It's movies that have been adulterated. That's where that term comes from. It doesn't mean that it's a sign of your maturity. It's a sign of your immaturity <laughs> and your, your fallenness if you're, you know, into pornography like that. It, it's it's not adult. It's adulterated entertainment. These are adulterated performances. Uh, You know, they're degraded, if you will, morally degraded. They shouldn't be there for kids. After all, this is a taxpayer-funded event in my neighborhood. I think I have the right to ask that question. So here we are. Um, It's being done by the government. I have a a right to question what the government is doing. It's being done for kids as young as three. I think kids um, at 12. I think you ought to be at least 12 years old to see a, a guy dressed up like a woman spreading his bare legs with a taco in his crotch. You know, at least 12, yes. 12 would be fine. Yeah, sure. And so now they have uh, gotten him canceled, just like they did Christian Henson. My income and my ability to put food on the table has been taken away because I expressed an opinion. That's the point. You see, that's the political agenda behind this. Satan's got an agenda, for sure. Uh, The political agenda is we get power over you. We can control your speech. Uh, We can get you and force you to not only tolerate but then to celebrate and then to do it yourself. Let us do it with your kids. That's what they're ultimately after complete domination. 40% of liberal professors are now afraid that they'll lose their jobs over a misunderstanding. This is a new survey from the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression called FIRE. Uh, they do a lot, especially in universities, uh, because universities have become ill liberal. Uh, They don't tolerate much. They don't tolerate anything that they don't like, and there's not much that they do like. And so um, they're not about individual rights and expression. This is a new survey done by FIRE of 1,400 faculty members. And one person who spoke out about this um, and wrote the article about it, Samuel J. Abrams, says, As a professor, I'm on the younger side for faculty members. My cohort is much more illiberal than their older colleagues. Isn't that amazing, isn't it? That, that's how they steal things, right? Just like they stole the name woman, right? They stole the name liberal. Liberal used to mean that you were about liberty. It used to mean that you were about liberating people. It used to mean in the context of education that you were liberating people's minds. That's what classical education was understood as, a liberal education. You're giving people the tools of learning. You give the kids the tools of learning so that they can learn themselves. You educate them in the basics of reading, writing and arithmetic, and then they're able to take it from that and pursue their own interests. That was a liberating thing. That's not what they're interested in anymore. You know, the antithesis of a liberal education is propaganda and mind control, which is what all of our schools from K through kindergarten, or uh, uh, from uh, K through college are about. Right? They're all about dominating. Now, education is not the filling of a bucket. It's the lighting of a fire. It's not about giving people things from authorities and experts that they need to parrot it back to you. But that is exactly what this is about. And that's why the universities have been so useful for this takedown of our formerly free societies. It's what we, we need to understand what the problem is so that we can get rid of it. If we don't understand and identify the problem, we'll never get rid of it. So we need to understand what they've done to us. And we need to understand this is coming out of the universities. And let's get rid of the state funding for the universities. You want to talk about state funding for your, um, uh, your, your drag shows? What about the state funding for K-12? through What about the state funding for colleges? Get rid of that. As a professor, he says, I'm on the younger side of my family members. My cohort... Is much more illiberal than their older colleagues. Two thirds of faculty over the age of 55 said students shouting down a speaker is never acceptable. But he says when you look at faculty that's 35 and under, only 37 percent of people said that it's never acceptable to uh, shout somebody down. So you go from 67 to 37 as a percent of people who oppose. Um, uh, shouting down a speaker—that means that it's, it's flipped around the other way. You have two-thirds of people over fifty-five say it's never acceptable to shout down somebody who because you disagree with them. Whereas uh, two-thirds say it's not acceptable at that age. But you go down to the thirty-fives, next generation, two-thirds say that it is acceptable. Uh, that's the issue here. Um, urgent prayer requests on Rockfin. Andy posting for Michael Pomroy. Um, Good morning, all. Asking for prayer for my daughter having an emergency C section this morning. The baby is at 28 weeks. That's very early. Okay, so um, let's pull that up again. Uh, Michael Pomroy. Um, wow. Yes, please keep Michael Pomroy in your prayers. May God bless this baby and his family and give them peace. Uh, so sorry to hear that. And uh, by the way, we're going to get Handy. on. We had Handy scheduled uh, for yesterday. We're going to reschedule him. I'm sorry, Handy, um, if uh, we didn't get that information to you. We couldn't, we couldn't, because we had no internet, we couldn't pull up on our computers our email stuff. So we couldn't find your email address to even email you on our phones because it was only on the computer. So I apologize for that. We got that to you late. But talking about the speech, again, to say complete reversal Well, the difference in age is 20 years. That's one generation, right? So so what we're seeing now, that's why we're rushing headlong into a fourth turning, as Strauss and Howe said. You know, every 80 years, approximately, about every four generations, and they space them out by about 20-year periods. And these are the people who came up with the terms that we still use, millennials and Gen X and Gen Y and Gen Z and all the rest of this stuff. But they went back and they looked at a cyclical um, history through – Five hundred years of American and British history, but now the world is synchronized because we now have global communications, global economy, and um, you know, uh, and that's where we are right now. So it is a, a we've never had uh, this kind of dangerous situation um, in terms of this radical change across the globe. That's what these people are trying to exploit right now. He said younger faculty report more acceptance of even violence, not just shouting somebody down, but actually getting violent with them. 90%, 97% of the older faculty, that's 55 and up, say that it is never acceptable for a student to use violence to stop speech on campus. But only 79% of the younger faculty agree. So that means that 1 in 5, 20% of them, would say, yeah, let's use violence to stop any speech we don't agree with. Among liberal faculty 35 and under, only 23% indicated that students shouting down a speaker is never acceptable compared to 88% of the conservative faculty. Only 64% of young and liberal faculty say that it is never acceptable for students to use violence to stop a campus speech. So the young liberals, 36% of them will use violence against you. We've seen that. In 1955, he said at the end of the Second Red Scare, after World War II, During the age of McCarthy and deep anti-communist fear, 9% of social scientists said that they toned down their writing for fear of causing controversy. However, today we have 25% of people say that they're very or extremely likely to self-censor their writing in academic publications. So the people in academic societies, and again, you know, Marxism at the time was far more uh, prevalent in um, academic circles than it was anywhere else, always is. And uh, so you had 9% during McCarthy's era were afraid to say something because they were afraid that they'd be labeled as a communist. Today that number is 25%, afraid that they'll be labeled, I don't know, conservative or Christian or something like that, transphobic, homophobic, LGBT-phobic. <laughs> No, I don't fear them. (laughs) I'm theophobic. I don't fear. I don't fear homos or trans or anybody. I I I fear God. Uh, More than half of faculty, fifty-two percent, say they're afraid they'll lose their reputation or reputation over a misunderstanding of something they said or did, like you see with Christian Henson, perhaps, although he was upset about the fact that they are targeting young children. Uh, But these are people who are liberal. They agree with these values. But they're afraid that their ill-liberal liberal friends will misunderstand something that they said, and they'll lose everything. This is what happens when you create these repressive, totalitarian, mind-control regimes. Everybody can become instantly an enemy of the revolution. Anybody can be sent to guillotine. Uh, metaphorically, uh, career-wise, or eventually, they will use violence against you. They don't like your speech. You've already got more than a third of them saying, yeah, let's use violence against anybody we don't like. Well, what does that include? Next question they should ask, does that include the guillotine? (laughs) Two in five professors who are part of the prevailing orthodoxy on campus fear that they will lose their job over a misunderstanding. They buy into it. They really do. They really think that they're evil incarnate if they're white. But they're still afraid that somebody is going to misunderstand that and kick them out. You see, this is what we need to not be. And that is, um, this is why it's such an effective thing for us to have as our foundation Christ, Christianity, the Bible, uh, a, a hope of eternal life. That is grounded on something. If we have that, we don't have to worry about these people. Yeah, you don't want to have that happen. And, and you want to as much as possible try to be at peace with other people. Uh, you don't want to have pain and suffering. You want to try to avoid that if possible. But if your focus is eternal, you look at it and say, well, you know, I this is what I have to do. And if the consequences for that are bad, I'll leave that to God. And They don't have that. All these people have is their pathetic little job at the university, (laughs) and they are recycling this hate and these lies and this fear. They're recycling it with every generation that comes through, and it's become very intense now. As the report says from FIRE, this speaks volumes about the climate of fear, intimidation, and censorship on campus. Our society cannot thrive when opposing voices are met with fists rather than with facts. I like that, but you know, when this fear and intimidation that happens there is that any different than what's going on with Fox News, for example, or what's going on with the alternative media? You know, you, you know that it's afraid to criticize Trump or even talk about it. I, I talked last week about Wayne Allen Root. Here's a guy who focuses so much, and even Paul, Dr. Paul Alexander, Alexander, they focus on. The, the hideous bioweapon, the vaccine, that Trump is so proud of, sees himself as the father of it, rightfully so, as i said many times. He produced it. He was a producer. Fauci was the director. This is a movie. And as much as Wayne Allen Root Dr. Paul Alexander, and there's many other people like that, oppose that, they continue to cheer Trump. They continue to tell him that he's our only hope. Do they really believe that? Or are they just afraid of the mob? And, you know, again, same thing we're talking about in the universities. Well, Elon Musk is looking at uh, chat LGBT. And um, there was a longtime associate of his, um, David Sachs, who criticized it in a video that was put up on Twitter. Musk commented on that. And, um, uh, Sachs said in the tweet where he put up the video, he said, there is mounting evidence that open AI's safety layer is very biased. Oh, really? I don't think there's any question. <laughs> there's mounting evidence. No, it, the, the jury is in, um, it, <laughs> it's as bad as it's going to could possibly be. Uh, and that's why I talk about it. You know, the dangers that it's going to be used for things, but it is very biased. He says, if you thought trust and safety were bad under Vijaya or Yol, wait until AI does it. What he's referencing to is the former Twitter general counsel and head of legal, Vijaya Gade, and the former Twitter head of trust and safety, Yol Roth, who were uh, kind of uh, personally spearheading this censorship. And so Trump, Trump, uh, Musk responded and said it's a very important threat. And so um, that's kicked off uh, people saying, "Well, maybe um, Musk is going to do something about it." There's rumors that he approached Igor Babushkin, an AI researcher who previously worked with Alphabet, that's Google, uh, about opening a research lab. Uh, he denies that he has um, that he's um, joined the project yet, but Musk has talked about the fact that you know, Chat. LGBT is built on open AI and many other things, the art projects and stuff like that are built on open AI. Uh, Musk has said that he he co-founded that as an early investor in 2015. He left it in 2019. He says he's not very satisfied with the direction of it. So is there going to be a situation where Elon Musk will do a non-woke version of AI? Is that a good thing? Uh, You may not be aware of this. My son was telling me that um, there has been a project by some individuals just acting on their own. Uh, They went back and they took some of the earlier engines of, because there's been several different uh, uh, versions of uh, chat LGBT and the chat box and the software that's the basis of that. Uh, They went back and they um, took the kernel of that And then they added a database, which is not nearly as extensive as the one that's used by the online model. But they set it up so it could be used on a personal computer. Uh, So it's really small. And it got pretty good results uh, from this other stuff. And it doesn't have the layer, the last layer that was put on there, to uh, skew the reporting or to censor anything that's said. And uh, so, you know, you look at that or you look at what Musk is doing. Is that a good thing? Again, as I said, I don't think that even those things are good things. I I think we need to, uh, I I think it's going to, even if it helps you to do your job, uh, there is a certain amount of, uh, I have a a concern that, you know, even though I use uh, software to find my way around an unfamiliar place uh, in terms of getting directions, it's very convenient but we it's come at a price. We have lost a lot of our ability to read maps or to just kind of intuitively find our way, um, which is one thing that men are, are famous for, <laughs> thinking they've got a better idea how to intuitively find their way than we really are. That's a longstanding joke about the difference between men and women. But nevertheless, uh, there is a Certain things that are, that are atrophying, as I've mentioned in the past, even the people who do the knowledge, the taxi drivers in London, where it's very complicated, you can actually see as they exercise their brain, you can actually see a physical difference in their brain. And as these types of uh, faculties are uh, atrophying on us, that is not a positive thing. So if you use it to do practical stuff, well, pretty soon you're going to start to lose your ability to do practical stuff if it saves you some time. Uh, and. It always has the threat that if we trust it too much and it, and it can come across as very trustworthy. Uh, so again, it's exactly the kind of tool for breakthrough brainwashing that tyrants and despots need. That's the uh, article here from Climateeer Investing. Have you ever found yourself sitting at home in the palace thinking, if only there was an easier way to get the people to do my bidding? <laughs> See, that's what's going on. This is why, th- this is what's really behind the thinking of people like Bill Gates. we got to get an ID for everybody. You know, that, where does that come from? Well, that's that comes from him sitting at home at the palace thinking, is there an easier way for me to be able to get people to do my bidding? Uh, so anyway, he um, says, uh, look at this article from The Hill talking about uh, generative AI, in other words, it's not full general AI where the thing can think, but it's moving in that direction. Uh, this is from um, Monday, uh, February the 20th, or actually Sunday, uh, The Hill. Um, generative AI, says The Hill, is poised to be the free world's next great gift to authoritarian. The fierce debate that has is issued that has ensued among Western industry leaders on the risks of releasing advanced generative AI tools has largely missed where their effects are likely to be most pernicious, within autocracies. Now, the whole gist of this op-ed piece that was on the Hill Sunday was to say we don't have to worry about it because we got democracies, right? But it's going to be real. If we develop this in the Western governments, look at how this is going to be used in China and Russia and other authoritarian societies. You know, the Biden administration would never use it to control us, right? We just had the Biden administration issue a directive to all of government saying when you use artificial intelligence, make sure that it's something like chat LGBT, where it's got a layer there of equity propaganda. He says, so far, concerns around generative AI and autocrats have mostly focused on how these systems can turbocharge Chinese and Russian propaganda efforts in the United States. So this person at the Hill would never say of how this could turbocharge propaganda efforts in the United States against American citizens. Oh, perish the thought. We would never have our government try to propagandize us like they have the last 1,084 days. He says autocrats can use the full power of their states to optimize their propaganda's influence. In 2019, China's Xi Jinping demanded just that when he ordered his party state to leverage AI to, quote, comprehensively increase the ability of the Chinese Communist Party to mold Chinese public opinion. Is that any different than Biden's? See, the difference is is that uh, uh, Xi Jinping wants. Uh, generative AI to make the Chinese Communist Party look good. Biden wants generative AI to make LGBT agenda look good. Right, that's the only difference we're seeing. He says Putin has similarly doubled down on AI-enabled propaganda in the wake of the Ukraine invasion, including a fake video of Zelensky calling for Ukrainians to surrender. Uh, I doubt that that uh, clumsy thing was uh, done by um, the Russian state. Whether it was or not, it didn't fool anybody. Uh, China and Russia are, in other words, fertile ground for generative AI to usher in an historic breakthrough in brainwashing, a recipe for more international catastrophes, greater human right abuses, and further entrenched despotism. But we do have to worry about it in China and Russia. We don't have to worry about breakthroughs and brainwashing here in the United States. How many breakthroughs did we have the last three years in brainwashing? Finally, he ends up by saying this. Luckily, companies in the United States and in allied nations have largely led the advance of generative AI capabilities. That's coming from the Hill. Zero Hedge replies, and why is it lucky that the U.S. has led the development? The message is clear. We Americans have nothing to fear from generative AI misuse apart from Russia and China. And if you believe that, we've got a bridge that will sell you. Well, it's not a bridge they want to sell us. It's a bridge to full-on the, the dream of artificial intelligence. And I've talked about the fallacies of uh, many people in artificial intelligence who believe that if they can create a replica of the brain that it'll somehow spring to life. If the replica is good enough, it'll spring to life and it'll become self aware. It'll become sentient, it'll become conscious, whatever they mean by that. And again, as I talked about last week, look at it from a philosophical or religious standpoint. What does that mean? Uh, they don't have any answers for that. These are people who are materialists, and so they think that the brain is a computer and they're going to do something with it. Well, now, uh, here is another example of this. Uh, we have researchers at Johns Hopkins University are, dealing how, are detailing how brain machine technologies are the newest frontier in biocomputing. And they've got a roadmap about how to make it a reality. What they want to do is they want to grow human brains. Just like they want to grow biopsy burgers and uh, tumor teriyaki and all the rest of this stuff, right? Uh, we are going to um, you know, me- take a take a little piece of flesh from a chicken or a cow or something like that, and we're going to grow it into a uh, uh, a burger. And um, you don't have to worry about that or do you? Because the cells that are going to continue to replicate, which is what they're going to need on a large-scale manufacturing operation, they're going to need uh, cells that are eternal cells that continue to replicate. Um, frequently, those are cancer cells. That's why I call it tumor teriyaki. You want to you know, get one of those? Um, and so now the same idea is being taken to human brains. We can take uh, a a little bit of a brain and we can grow it. They call it organoid intelligence, OI, instead of AI. So instead of it being artificial, as in sense, it's going to be you know, uh, silicon and circuits. It's going to be organic. It's going to be human brain cells, and we'll use that as a computer because we all know they said that uh, brain organoids um, are much more dense in terms of storage capacity, in terms of speed of thinking, and all this other stuff. So that's what we need to do. We need to go with a uh, a bionic computer biological hardware it could one day be more efficient than the current computers running ai programs said um, uh, one researcher from john hopkins university wrote this to motherboard which is which has the article here he said uh, if we look at how efficiently the human brain operates in processing of information learning etc it is tempting to translate that model uh, that to have a system that would work faster and more efficiently than current computers again, the fallacy of all this is the idea that the brain is merely a computer that it or that it operates as computers do, but of course you see the ethical issues here, and you see the big elephant in the room. So these people <laughs> uh don't see God as the designer of the brain um they'll They'll study how it works but they will never see the design of it or the designer, even if they do see the design. We're reaching the physical limits of silicon computers because we cannot pack more transistors into a tiny chip. But the brain is wired completely differently. It has about 100 billion neurons linked through over 1,015 connection points. It's an enormous power difference compared to our current technology. Well, I would expect God to do nothing less. You know, we had these people using, uh, uh, cranking out DNA models for decades, and Francis Collins said, we're done, we figured it out. We got a lot of junk DNA because it's just not, not important. No, they don't understand it. But they declared themselves finished, and yet um, they can look at DNA, they can look at the code, the autocorrecting code, they can look at the, the same code that is every animal and every plant and not see a common designer. That's the amazing thing to me. And same thing with this. They can look at the brain and say, well look we how sophisticated that is compared to our computers, and it is. But we can't admit uh, that there is a God. Again, you know that, that is a fool, a rebellious fool to say that. And that's what fool really means in the context of the Bible, a rebellion. And so they can look at that and they can dismiss that, say there is no God. Of course there is a God, but the question is, uh, has he spoken to us, and where did he speak to us? And again, that's another, that's a separate issue. And um, I think it's it's very easy to make the case that the Bible stands alone in that. But uh, these people reject God, and they reject ethics, and they see themselves as God playing with us. This. this is one of the reasons I think they may be pushing for this brain computer interface. I just can't see people uh, lining up to do this. You you might have some people who are desperately paralyzed and um or something like that who would take the risk to have uh, these things put into their body uh Elon Musk's thing you know putting it sticking a chip directly on your brain all the issues involved with that in terms of heat and uh, charging and uh you know infection which is, has killed most of his uh, monkeys that he experimented on. But even when you look at the other approach being taken by the rest of the billionaires who want to control the world, and let's not forget, Musk is one of them. He is a billionaire who wants to control the world. He has technocratic royalty. His grandfather, Joshua Haldane, kicked out of Canada because he tried to overthrow the Democrat elected representative government and instill a technocracy. And that was back in the 1930s. Yeah, you know, he's talking about all these different things, brain, computer, interface, but, you know, so are Gates and so is Bezos and they're investing in companies because there's a lot of different companies that are doing this. It's not just Neuralink and uh, they're investing hundreds of millions of dollars in this. The government, DARPA, these, you know, dark agency that is constantly abusing technology for evil purposes, they're all heavily invested in this and, um, you know, they, um, the, the approach that's being taken by Bezos and Gates and their company that they, that they uh, got into, you inject something into the bloodstream instead of putting it uh, on the brain. And supposedly it can, um, you know, interface with the brain uh, in a particular area, I forget where it was or how it was, but they inject it into your bloodstream. And this is dystopian side. Sci-fi tech, if ever there was any. Just as with artificial intelligence, they said, there are ethical concerns. They propose an embedded ethics approach where interdisciplinary and representative teams of ethicists, researchers, and members of the public identify, discuss, and analyze ethical issues and feed these back to inform future research and work. And once you produce your report, guess what you'll find? Nobody there will care and nothing will change. We have functional brain organoids already, uh, said um, uh, one of these scientists, since we have an electrophysiological active system which has synchronous electrical activity and is responsive to chemical and electrical stimuli. The next step we're working on is to characterize and optimize the system further by demonstrating key molecular and cellular aspects of learning in particular. Uh, don't trust it. Don't try, don't have anything to do with this. You don't need it. And it is extremely dark stuff. Uh, we will be right back.
3: Joe, we've got a problem.
1: Uh, what? Uh, who, who are you?
3: It's the new mug they're selling at the thedavidknightshow.com, right? So... Basically, a mug is something that holds liquid, right? Cuz basically you can't hold coffee with your hands, right?
1: I I'm it's getting but anyone tries to mug me, I, I I'm be ready for it. You you dog-faced pony soldier?
3: They say the mug can help patriots drink coffee, then save the world. This could be bad for us.
1: Save the world, but we owe the world these people, they, they're supporting free speech with every month they buy. Come on. These people, uh, it's, I tell you, well, well, anyway. You're listening to The David Knight Show. All right, welcome back. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, the, when we look at what is happening there, um, <clears throat> It's, it's kind of interesting to see the different reports that we're getting from uh, different individuals. When I had a listener, uh, Austin, who uh, sent a video clip of one person speaking. Uh, what we all, if, if you have paid attention to this, there wasn't anything that was new really or uh, unusual in what the guy was saying. But he was speaking to a couple of um, uh, people on stage who <laughs> were uh setting in a couple of i think if I remember correctly, I looked at the video the um uh, they were uh congressional representatives, and they're sitting on chairs that really kind of look like thrones and Austin pointed that out, and he's absolutely right, and the they think that you don't know anything about what is happening there, but the the reality is is that um there are reports that are coming out on both sides, how this war is escalating. From the Ukrainian side, a retired American Marine fighting in Ukraine told ABC News that the front lines are a meat grinder for the Ukrainians. He said soldiers are surviving an average of four hours. Four hours. Troy Offenbecker, fighting alongside Ukrainian forces in the Donbass region, a retired American Marine. He said... um, That Kiev, he estimates, uh, I'm sorry, rather in Germany, it was not him, but um, in January, Germany estimated that Kiev was losing three-digit number of soldiers daily in fighting uh, for just one city, Bakhmut. At the time, the White House believed that Zelensky was committing too many lives and resources to defend that city. But this retired Marine, Offenbecker's commentary, suggests that this may be getting even worse. It's been pretty bad on the ground. He said a lot of casualties. The life expectancy is around four hours on the front line. And the reason for that, he said, the Russian attack on the city is not letting up. And it's turned into a meat grinder with artillery nonstop. He said Russian forces are fighting around the clock. The Russians have maybe run into a shortage of shells lately. But the past couple of weeks, it's been nonstop all day, all night, he told ABC News. Then on the other side, we have an escalation in terms of mass drone attacks being unleashed inside Russia, going farther and farther inside Russia. So what we were saying earlier when you know, we we're talking about the uh, perceived existential threat of the Russian people as well as Putin, um, you know, all, all of the things that they have believed. That many people who were dismissed as conservatives or hardliners had told them since the Yugoslavian war that uh, NATO was coming after them, many indications that we were not going to abide by the treaties, uh, that uh, you know, that, was, um, uh, that the goal, the objective, was to take out Russia. Well, now there is absolutely no question, in Russia, that they're in a fight for their very lives. they're an existential fight. Uh, Russia has come under attack by multiple drones on Tuesday, uh, one hitting outside, just outside Moscow, uh, an oil depot fire in Russia overnight, and um, another area that was only about 500 kilometers from the nearest Ukrainian held territory. Look, as this is happening in Russia, as I said before, you're going to see, I think, many, many more attacks on our infrastructure that you need to prepare for, even if we don't have a full-on nuclear war, full-on war with Russia and China, it's going to be preceded, by the way, with uh, attacks on our infrastructure. And um, they can do these types of things, and I think they are doing these types of things. And they can do it with plausible deniability. If they do a physical attack, well, it's always going to be dismissed if um, it's obviously a physical attack on infrastructure. It'll be dismissed or attributed to extreme right-wing Figures when in actuality uh, could likely be anyone coming across the border and doing this from any hostile nation. But the key thing is going to be cyber attacks. Those are going to be dismissed as ransomware, and um, I think that a lot of these ransomware attacks are exactly that. There's no way that uh, you know Russia can do that, and there's no way that they're going to be able to pin that on them. Uh, So as we see, you know. People with a life expectancy of four hours on the front in this one particular city that's undergoing heavy shelling. Uh, The Russians are doing this with an increased intensity because of the coming escalation in terms of equipment and other things. Uh, You It can't be deployed right away. The people have to be trained in how to use it. So Russia is trying to finish this up before that happens. But it's not just the Biden administration. Look, we've got Rick Scott. Who is slamming Joe Biden's pacifist approach to China? And this is being put out by Breitbart, essentially in agreement with him. Oh, because it's Biden. Uh, if Biden isn't warlike enough, we need to have the Republicans step in and do this as well. Uh, so on Sunday, he attacked Biden. Rick Scott did, um, senator, former governor of Florida, lamented the administration's simpering efforts to appease Beijing. That's what Breitbart is saying. That's their words, his simpering efforts to appease Beijing. Scott said, all that Biden does is to pacify China. I don't know what it is, but this is a guy who won't stand up to dictators around the world. Well, the way I see it, uh, he's being paid off by all these people. He's not being paid off just by uh, Ukraine and China, uh, but he's Doing everything he can to push us into World War III. And George W. Bush uh, came back out of hiding. I guess he's uh, tired of sitting in the bathtub painting portraits of his feet. No joke, he did that. Um, and uh, so now he's got to out there as a public face. And no, we don't miss you yet, George. Uh, you can go back home. Uh, and I think we know what the W stands for right now. It stands for warmonger. Uh, George Warmonger Bush pushing back on any GOP criticism of the Ukraine funding, not going to constrain helping the U.S. citizens here. You know, we, uh... (laughs) Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, spoke at the event with George warmonger Bush because they're all on the same page. As a matter of fact, maybe these Republicans want to go faster, you see. This is why, you know, they push these wars with the Democrats because they think that the... uh, the Democrat base doesn't want war. Of course, that's changed now. You know, that's the old, uh, the old paradigm, you know, that the Democrats were for civil liberties and against foreign wars, and that's not the truth anymore. But uh, the Republicans still, you know, out there ahead of them on all this stuff. U.S. military aid to Ukraine has now exceeded the cost of what we gave in military aid to Afghanistan. As of June the 15th this year, billion in financial aid for military purposes to Ukraine. And that's just the military spending. That's not counting uh, the fact that uh, we're going to make their pension plan good. Well, we don't have a plan even for Social Security here necessarily. We're going to make sure that they're good. We're going to make sure that we build their economy. uh, Whether or not the rest of us as Americans get that, that remains to be seen. Every couple of days, you see another announcement from... Biden, or in this particular case, Janet Yellen, um, going to Ukraine. She's now announced another one and a quarter billion dollars. Wasn't it just a couple of days ago that we had Biden doing essentially the same thing? I don't know, half a billion dollars or a billion dollars. It's like every couple of days they announce a new program of, you know, around a billion dollars that they're going to give this uh, endlessly corrupt country. You know, I've played the clip in the past. I don't have it on the board today. of. uh Bill Gates saying, unfortunately, Ukraine is probably the most corrupt government anywhere. Bill Gates said that. I guess that's one of the reasons why the Democrats got so heavily involved there. Um, (laughs) Just just like they do in Chicago, by the way. You saw that uh, Lori um, Lightfoot got uh, kicked out of Chicago, right? (laughs) That's, That's a real precedent setter. You just don't have mayors in Chicago as corrupt as that city has been for so long. You just don't have mayors get voted out. Well, I'm sure that they didn't get somebody in there who is going to really make a substantive change. They just couldn't stand her. Uh, Russia is turning to China's yuan in an effort to ditch the dollar every day. We see more examples of how uh, Biden is destroying uh, the reserve status of the dollar, which is going to have massive consequences for uh, the federal debt as well as all of us as individuals. Uh, So... Uh, with all of this happening, they're very clearly moving in a path, preparing a path to go to war with China. I think that's one of the key things about this narrative of um, the um, um, the uh, lab leak stuff. Uh, before we run out of time, I just want to give you an update as to what is happening on some of the uh, border issues. It truly is amazing to see what is happening on the border with this rancher. They put a million-dollar uh, bounty on his head, wouldn't let him out bond, wouldn't let him out of jail to a 73-year-old rancher. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of money. He's got a ranch out there in the middle of the desert. He's got an elderly wife. He wanted to be there to protect her because you know they're in danger from all the trafficking that is going across the border there. But they put a million-dollar bond against him. They charged him with first-degree murder. That's premeditated, all the rest of the stuff. It's unbelievable. The judge who is doing this is a justice of the peace. A justice of the peace. Yeah. Never forget uh, the tyranny that can be leveled at the local level. You know, It, it was a probate judge who killed Terry Chavo uh, because... Governor Jeb Bush and President George Bush would not intervene on her behalf. As I've said many times, you know, you better pay attention to what's happening locally because they can make things a lot worse, or they can stand in the gap and they can intervene against tyranny from above, or it can go the other way. So this is Justice of the Peace, Emilio Velasquez, Velasquez, I guess is how you pronounce his name, uh, what are his motivations? Well, we don't know, but certainly the guy is obviously biased. Whatever his motivations are, his actions scream extreme prejudice. So they've changed this charge. And of course, it's not just the judge, but it's also the prosecutor. They've moved the charge from first degree down to second degree. They changed it uh, for, the, for the $1 million. They would not uh, come back off of that. But they allowed him to put up his house as collateral, and he had a fundraiser on Give, Send, Go. So between the money that he got on Give, Send, Go and uh, the house as collateral, the guy's not a flight risk. You don't need to put a million-dollar bond on him. He's 73 years old. He's never had any issues with anything. The prosecutors didn't elaborate on the downgraded felony charge, but he also faces two additional charges of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Look, if they convict him of anything, he's 73 years old. You look at him, he's, he's pretty fragile. If they convict him of any of these charges, it's a life sentence. His attorney asked the judge to grant continuance. She said since the state's case had changed drastically and there were new disclosures. We'll talk about that in a second. She said, in my experience, it's routine to grant continuances. Mr. Kelly should not be treated any differently, but he is being treated differently by this judge, Emilio Velasquez. Anyway, she said, frankly, I'm amazed at the state's opposition to a request for a continuance. So, what has changed, I believe, I've not seen this before, uh, the, the fact that, um, you know, he called it in, and he had both the Border Patrol and the Sheriff's Office come there, look, nobody found a body. Then later in the day, he found a body, uh, and, you know, when these people were there, they had uh, AK-47s, they were in military gear, the guy that they found dead eventually had a radio on him, everything looked like they were doing, involved in some kind of trafficking. He said they pointed the uh, gun at them. He told his wife, "Stay down." And he went out. and Said he shot some warning shots over their heads. Then he called the border patrol and the police. They came by. They didn't find a body. Then later in the day, uh, he was out riding, and he came across the body. And then he called them again. Said, "Hey, there's a body. Come, you know." And um, so, why did they not find it? Had it happened at a different time, uh, around five p.m. So he said, um, now, as all this is happening, a detective from Santa Cruz County is basically on his side against the prosecutor and against the judge. This uh, Santa Cruz County detective, Larkin, in um, cross-examination from the defense counsel, said, I arrested him based on the totality of the circumstances alone, the detective said. Um, And um, the, uh, the new evidence... Was that the prosecutors called a guy in they don't uh, they protect his identity he testified that he was with the deceased man uh, he said our group was walking when this gentleman shot at us, said the witness, and I saw Gabriel hold his chest. He added then that um, the man who died rolled his eyes and fell to the ground sideways. I ran. I couldn't help him. The witness testified that the gunshots were about 15 in total, sounded like rounds from an AK 47. But the Santa Cruz County detective, Larkin, says that's not credible. Uh, The Santa Cruz detective said there was no reason to believe the absolutely incredible, quote unquote, absolutely incredible testimony of the witness. The police found no shell casings in the quantity matching the witness description. So they didn't find a body. They didn't see a bunch of, they didn't see 15 shell casings ejected because the guy's sitting there pulling them off one after one, uh, one after the other on on an AR. Uh, And the detective said, it is not conceivable that Mr. Kelly aimed from his porch, somehow saw this person and made this long, difficult shot. Obviously, there's a dead body there, but there needs to be a probable cause that this crime took place And that this specific person committed this crime. Just because the body was found on his property after the police and the Border Patrol couldn't find it. And because they brought in a criminal protecting his identity who accuses him and makes false statements about the number of shots based on there's no evidence to show that. As a matter of fact, there's physical evidence to deny that. And the detective says it's absolutely incredible. So the detective, Larkin, asked the judge to do the right thing, and to find no probable cause in the case. And yet, the judge who first came after, you know, the judge and the prosecutor who first came after this guy for a million dollars, is uh, still after him. This has essentially lit a match over an incredibly intense political powder keg, and predictably, there was an explosion, said the detective. It's all political. Just to give you a metaphor for what is happening here, though, with the, uh, the, the intentional chaos at the borders by Biden and others. A Swiss man evicted from his home to make way for asylum seekers. This is a metaphor for what's literally happening everywhere. You will be evicted from your home, the American dream, if you can't pay for schools to educate all the children who decide that they want to come here and be educated at your expense from anywhere in the world. It doesn't have to be Mexico. It doesn't have to be Central America or even Latin America. They can come from any country in the world and become your dependents, and you will have to pay for it. And uh, whether you own a house or whether you rent, you will pay for it in your property taxes. Look at what is happening to the explosion in schools. That's what I saw in Texas. A Swiss man in Zurich has claimed that his local municipality has given him an eviction notice so they can accommodate asylum seekers and refugees. He rents his apartment from the state. He's 47 years old, and he's been told that he has to leave by the end of May. The local government even admits that they received an order from the regional government to provide more housing for asylum seekers. He said, I'm incredibly sad. I have lived here for over 15 years. My children grew up in this apartment, he said. I'm scared. I don't think I can find another affordable home in the area in the next three months that can accommodate myself, my children who visit me every two weeks, and my pets. There's been an outcry on social media over the move, but the municipality said, well, this decision was difficult to make. But unfortunately, this is the last possibility to reach the quota for reception of refugees prescribed by the regional government. After he is removed from the apartment, five Migrants will be placed into the flat. That is what they're doing. They're dispossessing us. Again, the quote that is attributed to Jefferson, although there's no evidence that it was from Jefferson, but it is a true quote. When we allow the central banks to take over our economies, we'll find that we're homeless on the continent that our forefathers conquered. And that's the reality that we look at here. The Biden administration is not worried about that. What is the Biden administration worried about? Well, they're worried about a 2008 warrantless wiretap spy law that may lapse if they don't renew it. Who was president in 2008? Well, that would be George W. Bush, George Warmonger Bush. Uh, that happened in 2008, uh, giving some you know, extensions and some loopholes to the FISA uh, restrictions that were there. Uh, it's uh, Section Seven O Two. They say without that we'll lose indispensable intelligence. And um, yet, what I was the thing that I was most surprised about with this. We all know that they're uh, doing wiretaps without any probable cause. That they're actually using FISA, which was supposed to stop them from doing that. They're actually using FISA in order to do that. What I found surprising about all this stuff was that in Breitbart, they attributed all this to Obama. They even say, the law initially passed in 2008 when the Obama administration was worried about Middle East terrorism. No, they weren't really worried about that. They were worried about Americans. That's why they want to uh, spy on Americans without search warrants. But Obama was elected in 2008. He was elected in November of 2008. And as you know, presidents take office at the end of January. Uh, So Obama took office in January of 2009. But see, this is another example of blind partisanship. We don't have a problem with an unelected, unaccountable national security state that has actually become a real government. No, the problem is with Obama. Obama is just a front. Obama is just an idiot front like George W. Bush. Although Obama, you know, both of them... (laughs) having connections to the cia and their family you know obama it was his grandparents with george w bush it was his daddy all of them (laughs) cia blood that's what it's all about but no let's play the republican democrat game that's by all means let's do that well thank you for joining us going to be back on air
0: David Night Show is a critical thinking super spreader. If you've been exposed to
2: logic by listening to the David Night Show, please do your part and try not to spread it.
0: Financial support or simply telling others about the show
1: causes this dangerous information to spread farther people have to trust me i mean trust
3: the science wear your mask take your vaccine don't ask questions
2: using free speech to free minds it's the david knight show